Though it's a time of peace, and we've covered the administrative and legal developments, the priorities and advancements under Aegon the Conqueror, not to mention his wars, you know, the conquest, arguably this is the biggest expansion of the story yet in Fire and Blood, because now we focus on characters. We started to tease it more the last few times as Aenys and Alyssa and their children and Magor come up and grow up. And Visenya is no longer just her brother's watchful eye and right-hand woman. She takes a far more active role in determining the future of House Targaryen. Not just Westeros, but House Targaryen. Of course, the two are overlap, but this is more of a focus on their internal house rather than the realm at large. In other words, we've seen how they rule the realm. How do they rule their own family, though? How does that manage? How do they rule themselves? And that's a big part of what makes this episode unique. We get to see the first royal house of the dragon come into being. This is how it starts. Lots of matches, marriages, children, and grandchildren, and a few changes to their living arrangements. The house of the dragon becomes the home of the dragon. Hmm. And funny how when you talk about family, normally, or at least when you're discussing family in other contexts, it's often... You know, something wholesome. Time with loved ones, people you can trust and count on. I mean, that's not true for every family. Particularly not true for noble families and royal families. <laughs> definitely not the very first House of the Dragon. It's definitely not an exception. In fact, it's a great example of the opposite of a positive, nurturing environment. They might teach you how to lead. They might teach you how to rule. But managing yourself, getting along with other people, that's not as much of a focus. So this episode features new threats, new Targaryens. Some who are both new Targaryens and new threats, not to mention more actual dragons and a few open questions that might rise to the level of mystery. All that and more on this episode of History of Westeros podcast. Hello and welcome back everybody, my fellow Westorians. We are here once again this Episode is being recorded at 3 Eastern on YouTube, which is when we do most of our live streams. The exception is when there's a TV season on and the occasional other thing. But yeah, Sundays at 3, that's our home or our house, you know, since that's the theme today. And we, well, we do record in our house and Sean records in his. So, hey, we got a whole house home thing going on here. After the live stream, you can eventually find the video on Spotify about a week later in edited form, and the podcast version is anywhere you find podcasts <laughs> in edited form as well, and it's ad-free if you listen on Patreon. That's right. Cut out several minutes of ads if you subscribe voluntarily, and you also get bonus episodes. So not only do you cut out the ads, but you add bonus episodes. It's ads gone, bonus episodes in their place. That's a pretty good deal. Another thing we have going over on our Patreon is the Topics Moot. It's been running all month. It's getting closer to the end, but as of this recording, it's still going on. And in the mid-roll, we'll talk about some fun things going on with that, because there's been some fun developments and some topics chosen. Sean, what are you, uh, what are you drinking today? And what is that on your shirt? You know, I, it's reminiscent of, of Dunk at Arlen's grave by the oak tree, I think. But that's not what it is. This is from... Uh... The Last Airbender, Avatar of the Last Airbender, is oh, okay. a couple. Uncle Iroh goes to visit his son's grave at a tree. And and it reminds me a little bit of just the nature of the father-son dynamics that that show included and how maybe if the parents had been better, the children would have been better. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Isn't that always the case? 
What about your beverage? Well, this is a little different than normal. I've been drinking the Naked Green Machine pretty consistently with the Magic Mind mixed in it. And this time I have a, uh, there's a new sparkling ice flavor, just straight strawberry, Starburst strawberry. Oh, so I've got that in the mix too. Right on. That's cool. Shay, what shirt do you have on there? I'm wearing one. I wear a lot just because it's kind of comfy. It's a long sleeve uh, sweatshirt with uh, Sailor Moon on the Iron Throne. But the Iron (laughs) Throne is made all out of like magical girl weaponry (laughs) uh, instead of just sword. I've got a little Westeros shirt on from the TV era, TV show era, original TV show era. And I thought it was appropriate because we're discussing the ongoing formation of a new westeros so i thought it was appropriate also you know i just uh i have a lot of game of thrones shirts but we've done a lot of episodes and yeah <laughs> i have to wear them twice every while or three or four you know i can't just have one for every episode i wanted to make a, a quick note talking about house and home earlier yeah. it just reminded me of a, a a thought a quote that has stuck with me i think i'm pretty sure it's from the death of a salesman home is where when you have to go they have to take you. <laughs> I need thought. Almost every angle you come at that, I think it's pretty true. Yeah. Well, this is the kind of situation when you're talking about royalty where that's never the case. They've got too much money to be forced to take you. Well, they'll just give you another castle. Like, well, no, if we, if we <laughs> want to let you live, we can just stick you over here. Well, that means that's not really your home. I guess not. And that is a bit, that is one of the problems we'll be discussing is that Anis and Magor uh, didn't really spend a lot of time together. They didn't, to them, it wasn't really a home. It was a house and not a home for them. Shout out to our good friend Nina, aka Good Queen Alley. Goodqueenalley.tumblr.com is where you can find her writings. The latest blog post is uh, regarding a question she got about House Ironwood's support for the Blackfires. What might the Blackfires have offered House Ironwood to bring them over? Or what did the Ironwood see as a benefit to siding with the Blackfires? And it's a very interesting answer. It, it involves some of what we're talking with today. In fact, some of the uh, eventual unification of Dorne with Westeros is included and in how that might have been a wedge to use in this scenario where some people like, hey, some people didn't want to become a part of the Seven Kingdoms and that might be who the Ironwoods court for their side. And it's a pretty good take and a pretty good question. I'm going to give a personal shout out to Nina also. My sister has arranged a trip to Disney World for my family for my niece's fourth birthday. And I asked Nina, and I was like, hey, what can you tell me about Disney World? <laughs> and I think she knows more about Disney World than A Song of Ice and Fire. She only like Which is really saying something. paragraphs of yeah. information and said that was the tip of the iceberg. Yeah, she is very knowledgeable. <laughs> that is very darn sure. About both. Yes, about both. And much more. And much more. But those two things are near in her top five, probably. <laughs> so I will mention some episodes at the end that relate to this one. Of course, we often talk about things that relate to other episodes we've done in the past and that's always a fun way to stay immersed if that's your flavor of the day or the week and if you have any questions for us you can put them in the chat if you're watching live or send them to westeroshistory at gmail.com as a good default way to send questions we've been getting some some from y'all lately enough so that we might have to do another mailbag episode one of these days so if you want a mailbag episode to happen by all means, send us more questions. It'll make it happen sooner. And uh, the trivia question. Let's get started with that. Also, the answer at the end, along with the episode recommendations. Which one of Aegon's grandchildren? Now, grandchildren only, not great-grandchildren or great-grandchildren or great-great-grandchildren or great-great... No, um, I'll stop there. Never rode a dragon. Which one of Aegon's grandchildren never rode a dragon? Only one of them, but... 
Yep. And again, as usual, the answer will be in this episode. Also, then we'll uh, name off some patron names, too. That's right. We do like to do that. Good fun stuff. That's true. Good shout outs there. Last time we took a look at policy, law, and gradual changes to the realm on a macro level. We jumped around in the timeline because much of what we had to discuss played out up to several decades. This time we have a better idea of the years and the order of events, so we'll be letting several narratives play out at once as we move through the founding of the House of the Dragon. We'll go year by year. Their expansion, the proliferation of actual dragons and Targaryens came along with that, and the death of their founding patriarch, the Conqueror. That will happen at the end of this episode. It's in this episode as well that people would start to look at him and see Aegon I, meaning that one after his name because well he had a grandson born during this part of the timeline named Aegon and this prince was in the direct line of succession and many other grandchildren came before and after well one came before and several more came after but in total several came little could Aegon the first know that Prince Aegon, his grandchild, would never be crowned, and not because of some tragedy that befell him, although you could argue it was a tragedy, but really it was Magor that befell him on his own dragon, Beleriand. I don't think Aegon would have been pleased to find that out from beyond the grave, but he was beyond the grave when that happened, so yes, this will come many years later, but we can absolutely trace the events of this era to the events of that era. A lot of those dots are pretty easy to connect. A few others, not so much, though. So we'll, that'll be something for us to delve into. Today, we'll be talking about Aegon and Visenya, Lord Ethan Valarian, Sir Osmond Strong, the Hand of the King, Princes Aenys and Magor, Alyssa Valarian, the eventual queen, Princess Reyna and Princess Alsan, Princess Aegon, Viserys and Jaehaerys, Cerise Hightower, Pirate King Sargasso San, lots of names there. Now, that's a lot of princes and princesses. More than one king, thanks to Sargasso. Only one current queen, but several future queens. Yeah, lots of future queens. Cerise, uh, Alisanne, Alyssa. <laughs> it's a lot of queens. And two hands as well. But there's a lot of actual dragons born this era too. And I mean actual dragons, not these Targaryens. And of course, more as well. A great era of growth for both the House of the Dragon and the dragons in the house. One of the reasons why this larger cast makes the story a bit more fun is because there's so many more perspectives to consider. So many interactions between so many important people. And, well, we have the characters who forged this new world and those who were born into it. That's enough queens, by the way, for a musical. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> That's true. You could go a bit higher. You know, I feel like you get up to about <laughs> six. You know, and that's that's about where you want to stop. <laughs> the year 19 AC, I believe, is where we can start to go year by year for a while and be able to stay on that chronology without having to jump around. So a house for the House of the Dragon is our first section. A royal city gave Aegon manpower and wealth to draw upon if his kingdom was ever threatened by one of the other great houses or from outside the kingdom. Of course, I'm speaking of King's Landing. And he could likely see how it would give even more wealth and manpower to his descendants, given how rapidly it became a city in the first place, and how that growth just continued for decades and decades, which I think was predictable. Quote, Unlike its rivals, however, King's Landing had no walls. It needed none, some of its residents were known to say. No enemy would ever dare attack the city, so long as it was defended by the Targaryens and their dragons. The king himself might have shared these views originally, but the death of his sister Rhaenys and her dragon Meraxes in 10 AC and the attacks upon his own person 
undoubtedly gave him cause. And in the 19th year after the conquest, word reached Westeros of a daring raid in the Summer Isles, where a pirate fleet had sacked Tall Tree's town and carried off a thousand women and children as slaves, along with a fortune in plunder. The accounts of the raid greatly troubled the king, who realized that King's Landing would be similarly vulnerable to any enemy shrewd enough to fall upon the city when he and Visenya were elsewhere. So he really, really couldn't have something like that Tall Trees raid happening. Now, Tall Trees town is old. It's been around a long time. It is it is what it is. It was obviously a massive tragedy what happened to them, but it doesn't really change what that city is. It doesn't change its history. It doesn't establish it as something different. This is a new city, King's Landing. If, if word gets out that this new capital is vulnerable, then there's going to be more attacks. So it isn't just about saving his people from an attack. It's saving them from a pattern. It's, he doesn't want that to be how his city is viewed as a target. He doesn't want it to look like a place where people can come. He, in fact, he wants it to be the opposite. He would, he might like someone to come, lose, and then that's the message that everybody gets. Kind of like what happened to them in Dorne. <laughs> it's also uh, sort of symbolic. He doesn't want that to be its legacy either. Right. And it doesn't have a legacy because it's so new. So that would be right. a new city is in search of a legacy when it's it's establishing that. And this would be part of that. This This weakness, this... Well, when it was new, it was sacked, and that's it's been that ever ever since then. Blah blah blah. You know that could be how it's described. Egon doesn't want that. And not just a new city, a new capital of a new realm. Yeah, right. The it's new the capital. layers and layers of uh, symbolism here make it important for Aegon to not let something negative happen. Yeah, that would be really bad for his reputation as a king, for his dynasty getting started, for his new realm. Yeah, just a, a number of really bad things. And he realized that he kind of left himself open for it by not setting up some defenses sooner. So. He did uh, make the effort to address that shortcoming. And all this growth was was surely something to be encouraged, as, as difficult as it was to manage and as hard as it probably was to keep track of and growing out of control that it was. This would have been a much bigger problem. You know, that's a good problem to have as a ruler. I've got too many people coming to join my new city. Oh, what will I? Woe is me. But if they're all carried off into slavery to another continent, yeah, that is a real problem. I mean, that's not even talking about the individual lives and and the, the horrors they would have to face he's just this is just Aegon thinking about his kingdom he's not thinking about individuals and their suffering though that is certainly relevant i'm just not i'm just a bit cynical in thinking that he probably doesn't care about that too much there, there had never been a large-scale settlement at this spot before, you know, King's Landing, the area there'd never been a united Westerosi kingdom of course we've said that before but that's it's important to point that out as a perspective to the rest of the world. The rest of the world has never seen Westeros united. The rest of the world has never seen it under one rule. And of course, it's not quite under one rule. There's beyond the wall and beyond the Red Mountains. But, you know, you, you get the point. It's a, a very new situation. So the rumors would spread far and wide. The, the reputation of King's Landing and say, Ashai is almost non-existent at this point. You know, it's only been around for 20 years and it takes, what, two years to do a voyage back and forth to Ashai. So, yeah, there's not a lot of there's not a lot to say yet. People, some people in Ashai probably haven't even heard of King's Landing by this point, which is really saying a lot. But it's also goes to the point that 20 years for a city is, is nothing. That's the infancy of a city. And there is a, as well the possibility of, you know, like it says in the book. Aegon, the times that Aegon was attacked, where he was almost assassinated, you know, if he had been killed at this point, what would happen? I mean, his heir is too young. Visenya is 
maybe a bit, a bit of a hardliner. Having her in full charge might not work out great. She's a little maybe too too tough and not good enough at using soft power. <laughs> so who knows? Yeah, and it, it, lots of things could have gone wrong had King's Landing been sacked. I can imagine uh, even even thinking about some of the conflicts that had happened in his conquest, like that wedding that got raided by the Dornish. Yeah, right? yeah. Like something like that happening in King's Landing. It's not like an all-out, you know, assault or something like that. Something like that would still be a bad mark. And I'm sure in considering or realizing this, or maybe someone else like a maester might have brought this to his attention. Yeah. Right. And I can imagine there would have been infinite examples they would have brought to him, right? Of like what you need to be afraid of. Yeah. <laughs> it <laughs> yes. might not have been hard to convince him, but if he was reluctant at all, they could have just one after another talked about different cities being sacked and the impacts of it and so on. He was like, okay, 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 we'll build some walls. Now. Yeah. So walls he did build, and this is of course familiar to us because the King's Landing that we have seen in A Song of Ice and Fire, during the Dance of the Dragons, Duncan Egg, all that, it always has had walls from all the times we've seen it. So it becomes the more familiar version of itself, the one that we know. Seven gates, each with a named road, although those road names probably didn't happen right away. Those walls are really high. As far as we know, they've never had to be added onto a rebuild. So they did it right the first time, which is, you know, good on them. And remember that King's Road is new. Jaharis did a big, big road building project. So these roads... When we say there's roads out of the seven gates, these are still dirt roads. Maybe they're, they're not well, they might be well-worn paths, so like well-traveled, but they're definitely not made of stone. They're still going to be susceptible to mud and things like that. So that would be a later development. Now, remember, King's Landing is on three hills. There's Aegon's High Hill, the Hill of Rainies, Hill of Visenya. And the walls as a whore, as a whole, I almost said walls as a whore. <laughs> I did say walls as a whore. I didn't almost say it. I did say that by accident. And it's almost a square, even though it's such a big thing and so sprawling, the way the walls are built, it's, it is basically that. One side faces the Blackwater Rush, which is the river. Another side faces Blackwater Bay. One side faces inland going southwest along the Blackwater Rush. And the other side faces northwest pointing towards the Riverlands and the North and all that. So we can imagine when the walls were built, there was a lot of space. Because <laughs> like we said, we don't know of any rebuilding project or the walls being expanded on or anything like that. So they had to have left room for King's Landing to grow into the size it is now. Because obviously if they had built the walls just surrounding what it was there at the time, they would have been, oops, we need to expand and do that again. Here's a little map that Shea put up there. You can see, you can see how it's basically a square. It's got a bulge there on the, on the coast, but pretty much a square. One day we'll do a full episode on King's Landing. We, we had all these notes on King's Landing last time. In fact, a lot more than we're going through today. And I realized, yeah, we'll just, a King's Landing episode is, is more than appropriate. We've done episodes on Highgarden and and uh, Old Town. So of course, King's Landing is appropriate, even though it's got a much shorter history than those places. It's got a very rich, full history. New York has a shorter history than London or Paris, but it's not like, there's <laughs> not a lot to talk about in New York. Great so. point. Yeah. New York is relatively young compared, <laughs> comparatively. That's a great point. It's like a hundred years younger than King's Landing even. And the Aegon Fort's also going to be torn down a little later. We'll talk about that, but it's another part of expanding their house, making it more of a home and making it more appropriate. So a lot of King's Landing at this stuff was kind of mobile and changeable because it wasn't planned this way in the first place. So people just put things in places and yeah. I think that's kind of a recurring theme though with the Targaryens. They make, some Targaryens are just bad rulers and they make all sorts of bad decisions. But even the ones who make good decisions as rulers often make bad decisions as parents, right? 
Viserys on House of the Dragon is our primary example. He may not be the best example, but he's so prominent because he's on he was on TV. Robert Baratheon, similar example. Tywin's not a good parent. You know, there's all these bad parents. Now those aren't Targaryens, but it's still a recurring theme of people who rule effectively. Not necessarily well, but effectively or good. You know, Tywin, it's debatable. There's a lot of things he didn't do well, but he he, he was still better than a lot of other rulers because the bar is low. But if you're a bad parent of people who are going to be rulers later, he, you undermine all that, right? You ruled well as yourself, but you just foisted a bad ruler on, on the realm after your death for maybe a, a period that's longer than your period of rule. So Tywin rules decently for 20 years and then foists his family on the realm and Cersei and Jamie and Joffrey, and they all do all this stuff. Like, doesn't that t- take away from his credit, even though he didn't do it? Because he made those people. <laughs> you know, he taught those people. He educated them. He raised them or didn't or raise them. to. Right, yeah. which is in itself a failure. So and I think Aegon's more of that. Aegon isn't a, isn't a actively bad father. He may not even be a bad father, but I think he, what we'll see here going forward is he was more interested in things like this about King's Landing than he was in managing the people who were who will rule King's Landing after him. You know, it's, I don't know. We could talk about this infinitely, and we're trying to. Um, <laughs> but just thinking about, you know, Aegon, I, I, I want to try to justify some of his failures as a parent because he's ruling this new kingdom, which has all sorts of new challenges. Like even to whatever extent Tywin was ruling it, there was some established precedent and infrastructure and points of contact and everything else in place for him to work with you know but Aegon had established all that in the first place so you know you know I can maybe see Aegon being quote-unquote justifiably busy with other things not being able to manage his kids but Tywin I guess was too busy committing genocide (laughs) (laughs) what's his excuse you know yeah right (laughs) as a reminder for me this is Redis not reread us. Yeah, right. So right. <laughs> it's a lot that I'm taking in and processing and trying to just trying to like remember all the names and dates and stuff, much less uh, drawing conclusions. But it is something I've been stewing over a lot is that this point that you're making, it's this sort of this recurring thing of decent, at least ostensibly decent rulers failing with their kids, which then that next generation Rules badly. Yeah, but maybe if they had done worse as rulers and good with their kids, then maybe we'd be talking about how it's her current theme of they leave their kids with all these problems. Yeah, I'm not sure how much of it would have been different or how much is to blame them. But one or the other, I'm thinking so much about this consistent pattern. I wonder what Martin's trying to reflect here, you know, or if it's intentional, if it's just natural history or what. I agree with you in in theory that it's difficult maybe to do both. But I think that's one thing that George is teaching us is that there's very few people that are good at both of these things. It's, these are very different skill sets. I think ruling a realm and ruling a family or ro- providing for a family or leading a family or being a father are just extremely different things. There's no reason why being good at one would make you good at the other. They're just, it's like why uh, the old Mitch Hedberg joke, like, oh, you're a chef, so you're good at farming? No. Of course not. Yeah. Yes, they're food related, but they're completely different skill sets. Raising eggs versus cooking eggs and i like eggs as an example because there's eggons instead of eggs <laughs> and dragon eggs it's all it all fits very well yes one thing that they both take is time and there's only so many hours in a day you know even if yeah. you sacrifice sleep or hobbies or whatever else it's it's hard to just have enough hours to raise kids and manage kingdoms well one thing that gets me though i agree with what you're saying in theory one thing that gets me though and we'll go through examples of this throughout the episode is that Aegon will go against his own teachings 
in accomplishing these, or rather in making these failures. For example, he made a big point. Send your children to me so that I can have them all get along together. Yet he didn't do that with his own children. His own children yeah. were not raised together. And so he's just putting the wedge he's trying to not have between other houses. He's creating it in his own house. So that's, to me, kind of blatant. Now, maybe some of these other ones, there's nuance. But anyway, I'm getting ahead of myself. This next section is called Filling the House of the Dragon with Dragons. Let's have a quote. Prince Aenys was the heir apparent, and King Aegon kept him close by his side. As the king moved about the realm from castle to castle, so did the prince. Prince Magor remained with his mother, sitting by her side when she held court. Queen Visenya and King Aegon were off to part in those years. When he was not on a royal progress, Aegon would return to King's Landing and the Aegon Fort, whilst Visenya and her son remained on Dragonstone. So Aenys learned how to hold court from his father, where Magor learned how to hold court from his mother. And we know Visenya is a lot more hardcore, a lot less forgiving, more of a rule by fear type. So it's no surprise that's how Magor turned out. <laughs> We're in the year 20 now. We started on year 19. The Walls Project begins, and it's overseen by hand of the King Osmond Strong. It kept on going and going. It took several years. The realm would have a lot of young men and women born after the conquest. Of course, the initial effect of the conquest would be a lowering of the population because all the people killed in war. But then... You enter this and then more killed in Dorne. But then you have this period where we have peace for quite a while and peace between all the kingdoms, which means a boom of babies being born. Now, of course, we're still too early in the timeline for those people to be adults, but they're still mouths to feed. There's just lots of children being born and that's going to matter. And of course, when we're talking about noble children, that's going to be true as well. You have your the men of the household are less are out less fighting in war. They're at home with their wife. <laughs> and that means babies are more likely to be made, especially when you're talking about an entire population and not just a couple of houses. We're looking at macro numbers here. And that was true for the Targaryens, too. Instead of Aegon, you know, conquering and his, his wives being out on their dragons burning castles, they're at home. Well, Rhaenys isn't anymore, but still, his kids will be as well. So they're basically a population boom all over the place. And I'd have, I'd believe that the population boom began, if not during the first Ornish War, because as many people as were killed down there, we're still talking about an entire nation and 40,000 warriors going into Dorne isn't that big of a number when, especially since not all of them were killed, just, just, you know, more than half. When we're talking about the entire continent, right? That It's a lot of people, but it's not that big a number when we're talking about the entirety of Westeros' population. So uh, macro numbers are difficult to pin down here, but we can still imagine certain trends. Aenys would have been flying by now, which is neat to think about. He'd be the first new dragon rider since well before the conquest. Think about that. It, it might have been over three decades before a new dragon had been claimed in Westeros. Like from the time, I don't know who, we don't know whether it was probably Rhaenys was probably the last person to claim a dragon before Aenys claiming Meraxes. But it could have been Visenya claiming Vagar or Aegon claiming Balerion. Those might have happened later. We don't know who claimed a dragon first. But all three of them happened well before the conquest. And now here we are, you know, in the, in the year 20. And yeah, pretty neat. Meanwhile, Magor does not have a dragon, of course, but he does have, uh, he's already acquired age eight, as we said last time, and his master at arms, as we also said, one of the deadliest knights in the realm, Sir Gowan Corbray. So he's learning how to fight from one of the best. Now we know he's eventually going to claim Balerion. So I, I want to start thinking about that now, because was he waiting for that? Was that what he, was that his intent all along? But was it, his, or was it his intent? Did he six 
seven, eight-year-old Magor have this plan, or was it his mother's idea? That seems more likely. The adult having that idea is a little more likely than the eight-year-old, but it is possible Magor had it himself. I mean, the idea is pretty straightforward. Don't claim a hatchling. Claim a big one, or the biggest one. Yeah, because it might have just been, hey, wait for a bigger one, but it might have been wait for that one. Right, what do you what do you think about that, Sean? I think it would have been the mother's influence. I mean, not that he couldn't have thought of it as an eight-year-old, but things eight-year-olds think of aren't really <laughs> well thought out. Yeah, uh, yeah. even a squire at eight, whatever. still. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, uh, like, and it, it makes more sense to me at age eight, he would have just wanted any dragon he could get. I think it's more likely that his mom was like, be patient, wait for this certain dragon or... Yeah. Pro- probably that certain dragon. It, it, it does still seem, I will say, it does still seem like a bit of a risk for her to take but maybe she knows she has to be patient already since he's already just a second born son Mm -hmm. there's all these other factors in place that's a good point a lot of great takes from nina here on this subject everything about magor is about being a warrior he loved battle he loved showing his strength he loved dominating people He was good at it right and so it does kind of make sense that he would want to choose the biggest weapon of war. He wants to choose something that's dominating and something that enables him to express that part of himself, this the dominant side, the violent side, the the one that intimidates people. And what's more intimidating than Balerion? He saw his own father on that dragon and was like, yeah, that's for me. So maybe his mom gave him the idea, but I would imagine he light, he seized on it like, yeah, that is a good idea. I want that. Now, it might have been... The idea might have been, yeah, wait for a bigger dragon, not necessarily that one. Because what if Visenya died first? Would he have still waited for Balerion, or would he have just taken Vagar, who's, you know, the second biggest? I don't know. That's a tough call, and we will never know that one. But we're, we're reminded of Aemond. Aemond One-Eye, who, you know, pink dread aside, in the book he says, I don't want some puny hatchling or some stupid egg. That's a direct quote from much later in Fire and Blood. He wants the biggest. So maybe Aemond channeling Magor a bit here. <laughs> and Aemond does have some things in common with Magor other than... Uh, now, let's, let's not forget, Book Aemond was small. Show Aemond is actually a bit big. Not like muscular, but tall. And that's a difference. And of course, neither or anywhere the size of Magor who's huge. I think Magor would have taken Vagar, by the way. Especially once Aenys already has a dragon. I think he would have, he or Visenya... Would have been happy for him to take Vagar. Hmm. Yeah, it's possible, for sure. And Balerion was his father's dragon, too. So that's another thing. It's like, well, I'm the second born. I've been left out. Aenys gets all the attention. Maybe that's a way to... He'd never admit to it, being such a macho warrior type. But that might be a way to, like, emulate his father or be more like his dad. And if we're imagining that it was Visenya's idea, it, it isn't straightforward that, oh, she wanted her son to be the biggest and strongest. It could be that simple. But I think that's just part of it. Now, did she perceive Aenys as too weak and thought her son should be the king? Or did she perceive Aenys as too weak and thought her son would be very helpful? It was like, oh, he's going to need Magor. And this could change. Over time, she might be like, okay, no, I want Magor to be king. But at first, I wouldn't quite go that far, though I'm open to it. You know, Visenya, I think she wanted her house to be strong i don't know that she had to have her son on the throne maybe at some point her mind changed on that but i i kind of doubt it began that way um but it might have it might have definitely might have so yeah i think it's a very strong chance that she wanted Balerion for 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 her son and it may have been because she expected him to be king in the long run or it may have just been because she wanted him to be as powerful as possible 
which might have included being king. <laughs> There's another potential. She might have seen some of the red flags and wanted to put off him getting a dragon as long as possible. Okay. Right? Like, maybe, yeah. Maybe you need to mature first. Maybe you need sure you can handle a dragon. Maybe we need some other people with dragons to keep you in check. And mm. Maybe that's cynical of me or optimistic of me, of her, to, yeah. to have him be patient. But And she will later suggest betrothing Magor to Aenys' first child, which is like, that's not the mark of someone who wants to overthrow Aenys. That's just someone who wants her son to come next. Which is, and, you know, honestly, that wasn't the worst idea ever. It, it wasn't accepted. But anyway, it's it's about to happen now. So Aenys and Alyssa get married at in the year 22. Alyssa was daughter to Lord Ethan Valarian and Lady Alara Massey. Now, remember, Ethan was the son of Daemon Valarian, the same Daemon that died trying to take Gulltown during the conquest. He'd been master of ships ever since, Ethan has been. So 20 plus years at this point. So he's... A big man around campus, mean or big man around court. Uh, well accustomed to the Targaryens, been in their service for a long time. Obviously has Valyrian heritage shared with them. His brother, Lord Corlys, not to be confused with the Sea Snake, who won't be born for several decades still. Corlys was the first ever Lord Commander of the Kingsguard. So he's uncle to the future queen. Although it's actually possible Corlys is dead by this time. We don't know when he died. He might live for another 20 years. He might already have been dead by this time. Unfortunately, we don't have any more info than that. So this is not an incest marriage in the eyes of the faith, right? It's it's a Valarian and a Targaryen. So they got around the problem this time. But as we said last time, they had to know it was going to be a problem eventually, <laughs> you know, because uh, they would have married a daughter if they had had one. And... Aegon himself and Visenya and Rhaenys were also the children of a Valarian. So, right, their mother was Valena Valarian and their dad was Lord Arian. So either way, Alyssa looked Valyrian, silvery blonde hair, purple eyes. Now, Alara, here's a little change. Alyssa was said to be Targaryen on her mother's side in the world of Ice and Fire, but then in Fire and Blood it's changed to Alara Massey. So who is not Targaryen, clearly, but she might have had Targaryen in her heritage. So it might have been less of a change than it sounds like. Anyway, that's a small thing, but fun little trivia there for you. Hey, I could have made that the trivia today, but I didn't. Either way, they were linked by blood because Aenys' paternal grandmother was Valene Valarian, and that's, they're all, you know, all those Valarians would be connected to her somehow. So this, the purpose may have been the same as usual, keep the blood of the dragon pure. Now, acknowledging we don't know exactly what that means. We have our theories on what the blood of the dragon pure means. But to the rest of the realm, it probably just looked like they weren't willing to marry into the realm they ruled over. They were keeping it close-knit. They were keeping it Valyrian, which eh, that's not ideal. Especially because they're trying to adopt a lot of stuff about the Seven Kingdoms. They're adopting the faith. They're doing all these like house words and sigils and all these other things. It's still an understandable match from the Targaryen side of things because, well, it's not an incestuous marriage. To them, it seems like a compromise, probably, you know, even though to some members of the faith, they're like, no, we're not compromising over incest. Like, that's not something you compromise over. <laughs> it's like either you do it or you don't. So was he trying to maybe gradually shift things, like slowly break the realm into these issues that he knew would be a problem? Or was he just kind of expecting them to accept it because he's in charge and his family will be in charge after him. Yeah, it's it's not clear. And there's no evidence that they ever married into a non-Valyrian house prior to Aegon either. We don't know who his father's father and who Visenya and Rhaenys' grandparents married and all that. We do hear that there was 
a marriage between Game and the Glorious and a younger daughter. Uh, so there probably is actually some evidence. I'm probably wrong about that. There probably is at least a little evidence that there was marriages to the Seven Kingdoms from the Targaryens, but but not a lot of it. But even that one's not positive because it might have been a Valyrian or Celtigar or someone else of Valyrian descent, but it's not sure. Aenys and Alyssa were born in the same year, so they were very age appropriate. They had a lot in common. This may have helped their marriage quite a bit that they had so much in common, but maybe, you know, sometimes people bring out the worst in each other, you know, like you feed on each other's worst qualities, you know. <laughs> Some of these traits they had were not helpful as rulers. Like they both apparently liked to be loved and praised, which is not a great trait for a ruler. You need to be able to handle criticism and, and being wrong and things like that. However, there is some evidence that this isn't that accurate when it comes to Alyssa. Like, Septon Barth is the one that says she desired to be loved, admired, and praised. There isn't really any evidence for it. There is for Aenys. We don't have, like, like times when this happened. And Septon Barth didn't really know Alyssa that well. She know He knew her later in life, but he didn't know her at this time. So, mm, it might be a way to make Jaehaerys look a little better by comparison. I'm not sure. Either way, neither of them were big on making unpopular decisions at first, though... Alyssa's going to sh show that when things get dangerous, she can totally handle herself and is willing to do brave things and dangerous things where Aenys, eh, not so much. <laughs> yeah, I was going to make the point that, you know, wanting praise, like almost any trait, it's not automatically completely inherently bad. It can be bad if you do it too much, right? Yes. Other things. Yeah. It can be good because if you want praise, that means you're going to do things that people like. And that's a good thing for a leader, right? But yeah. You can't only do things that people like, or sometimes some people like A and some people like B, and you have to be able to decide between them. And there's mm -hmm. like a correct decision that you might avoid because more people will like one. Than yeah, the there's the popular choice and the right choice, and they're not always the same. Anis, what I think is being suggested is Anis would rather choose the popular choice than the, the one that maybe is better for the realm. And it's maybe Barth is suggesting that about Alyssa too, but uh, that's the thing we're not so... So sure and also, that. Barth is the one deciding what's better for the realm. So if he mm -hmm. thinks it's better for the realm, for the maesters and the church to get more money, but Aenys thinks it's better for the realm, for the average person to get more money or be taxed less or whatever, you know, there's still going to be a, a perspective of what's, quote unquote, better for the realm that That's Aenys true. may or may not have been making bad decisions. It's hard to say. He might have been a better king at a different time. He was not a king there, there to follow his father, <laughs> I don't think, at least if we're being results oriented and well we don't have much else to go on <laughs> other than the results here so in the year 23 ac moving forward one more year Aegon and Aenys fly to sunspear to celebrate 10 years of peace with thorn and let me tell you i do not suspect this was the most loose fun event of all time <laughs> you have <laughs> you have balerion and quicksilver hanging out so there's always the threat of dragons just right there and the Dornish were probably wondering what kind of guy this Aenys was. They probably heard a bit about it. When they met him, they're probably like, okay, well, I'm not so worried about this guy. This guy doesn't seem like he's going to come at us like his father. So they probably felt some measure of optimism. And this is the only son of the queen who had been killed in Dorne. I mean, so, this is the son of Rhaenys. They killed Rhaenys in this country. Clear, he would be about 16? Yeah. Is that correct? Yeah. 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 He Just was paint born the, in the year picture, seven. Right. Like this is like he's he's right in the throes of like his majority becoming like 
he's about to be an adult properly, yeah. right? Like, Rob yeah. Stark was already leading armies at this yeah. age. Yeah, like this is 16 is considered a man um, by royal standards, by Westerosi standards, and this is a crown prince. So he, he's been raised to be a leader. You know, uh, I have a thought here, kind of going back to something from earlier too. The idea that Aenys was traveling around with Aegon mm -hmm. for all these royal progresses. Yeah. One, that would have prepared him for this moment. However awkward this moment is, he was better prepared he knew what to than say. Negro would have been. Right? Yeah. Like yes. if he had just been sitting around in an ivory tower somewhere, he might not be as prepared for this sort of like interaction with new people, diplomatic moment, et cetera, et cetera. So however awkward it might have been, at least it wasn't quite as bad as it of a setup as it could have been, right? Yeah, observing the forms, so to speak. Yeah, all the court yeah. diplomacy and doing all the right things and showing all, saying the right, smiling at the right time and complimenting people. Yeah, all the stuff that we see. Yeah, picture Arya Hota observing the the court when there's the when Doran gets the skull and some people are saying all the right things like, yes, we can finally put the enmity behind us, even though everybody's like, no, we can't. <laughs> <laughs> some people are drinking, some people are not, are pouring their drinks out, you know, that kind of stuff. Another thought on this, and I haven't thought this out very well, but I'm just thinking about the difference because a lot of this is about the difference between Aenys and Magor, that I wonder how different a perspective and a personality and a leader they would have developed into when Magor not only, you know, being under Visenya, who would have had a different approach than Aegon. But also, the things he's observing are a little bit more, I, I think, people coming to the Targaryens where we need this from you, right? You have all this power and we need your assistance. Whereas Aegon is going out to other people saying, hey, how can I assist you, right? It's a, it's a different interaction. It's a different fundamental stand that they're taking when they interact with the different people. And I wonder how much that leads Magor to being a little bit more arrogant and maybe even frustrated with people. Yeah, they're more of just like a chore to him. Whereas I think you're right that Aegon and Aenys would have much more fun with with their experiences of dealing with petitioners and and, and a more positive spin on it. Aenys especially, that's a great point. He would love to be the guy that's giving people what they want and giving them justice and being seen to be praised for doing the right thing. And that's what a lot of you do when you're holding court. You're like, hey, I have this problem, King. Can you settle this? And he's like, yes, I can settle this. And then he would probably take a lot of satisfaction in that. Whereas I agree with you. I think Magor and Visenya might find that tedious. Yeah. And Aenys is part of Aegon's intention is learning about these other people in their cultures. Yeah. Right? So you have to listen Whereas to Magor is not learning about the other people in the cultures. He doesn't care. <laughs> and it feels like he has to deal with these people where Aenys feels like he gets to go help them and it, I could just see that 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 start off in their careers setting them in very different mindsets. You know? it, it's a lot like Robert Baratheon. Robert Baratheon isn't nearly as brutal as Magor, but he does like to fight. That They have that in common. He liked to fight. He wasn't mean or cruel about it or sadistic or psychopathic, but he enjoyed fighting. And he hated ruling. <laughs> he thought it very tedious. Yeah. It was boring to him. He just was like, let me get out there and fight. And that's Magor. Magor just wasn't, Magor loves tournaments and all this other stuff. Like, yeah, there's some real parallels there. And so how much of that is Magor's DNA versus his upbringing, right? Yeah, the, yeah. The, the thing he could do that was fun and to prove himself was go win a tournament. The thing Annie's could do that was fun and to prove himself was 
go help out other lords. Yeah. So in a lot of ways, happen when they're put in a position of power. You, know? you, you might even see a, a why Aegon thought, hey, this is pretty good. The one who's going to be in charge is the one that like can has the patience for this, and the one that if anyone comes at him, well, my second son will put them in their place. He might have had a rose colored lens on like yeah look how perfect that is you know i've got my warrior son gonna back up my ruling son hey, it's perfect yeah well not so much but you can see it that way <laughs> we might be looking at things in a 2020 hindsight lens true right Very like true, it didn't yeah. happen to work out but is it definitely a mistake that Aegon made it's hard to say so if we're getting back to this peace conference or this peace dinner whatever we call it Daria would have had some goals or things to accomplish. One would be just to make sure this whole thing goes off without a hitch, you know, make sure there's no violence, you know, make sure it all goes fine. Everybody sees that there's peace. Everybody sees that they're not kowtowing to what the Targaryens want. These are still independent nations, but they'd also want to suss out Aenys. Like, is this guy going to want revenge for his mother like his father did? You know, like, how does he feel about it? And I think they'd probably come away feeling pretty good about it because he's such an amiable, like, nice person i'd probably be like well either this guy's really putting on a bra an act or he's not gonna come at us and the latter was certainly true not to Aegon wouldn't have Aenys wouldn't have time to come after them even if he had wanted to his his reign's gonna be beset by internal problems like the idea of raising an army and going to dorne is it would be nuts given what's gonna happen <laughs> it's also worth noting that even if he is just putting on an act at least he understands he needs to put on the act. That's also important. Yeah. So think about this from Aegon's perspective. He has to sit there and drink toasts and say nice things to the people that he perceives as killing the person he loved most in this world and may have tortured her afterwards and used her life as a bargaining chip, potentially. Ooh, yeah. Talk about having to pretend to really... Talk about having to put your diplomatic face first because behind, deep down, he was probably feeling some things <laughs> you know some anger some sadness some a little of both maybe a lot of both yeah definitely he was having emotions though this couldn't have been just a another trip south you know ah, let me go get out of this dinner and then let me get this over with no i'm sure he had a lot like another we we always have strong examples from a song of ice and fire for for these social situations i love it why i'm in manderley having to like pretend to be happy with the phrase the phrase who killed his son <laughs> at the red wedding i mean this man had to really pretend and he did a really good job and he's continuing to keep that up until he finally got the chance and then he let it out like ah you know good or he would have grown up to be a fray you know <laughs> he gets to finally unleash his what he's really been thinking all this time murdering phrase on the road and being like i don't know what happened to them I, you know <laughs> so mm -hmm, yeah and that's what they're the, the, the dornishmen are thinking they're like well he's saying these nice things but is he gonna like have some of our people killed when we're not looking like what is this guy you know they, they have to be worried about revenge from someone so powerful i wonder if there's any part of this trip is to get us in his or to get Rainy's body's back. I wonder if any any of this is to was part of the original letter that was sent. Like if you keep the peace, ten years from now, you know, wouldn't be much body left to give. There'd just be bones. But still, that's something. Yeah. Bones matter. But the Targaryens yeah. burn their body. Yeah, we never hear about her body being returned. Only the skull of Meraxes, which is which is yeah. part of what makes the mystery a little deeper. Because if we had the body, that would well, that would tell us a little something. That wouldn't tell us a whole lot. But yeah. Yeah, it's possible. But but maybe that maybe he needed to keep that secret. Maybe the the reason we don't know is because the people that do know needed to keep that piece of it secret mm. to keep up the front of the peace or whatever. I don't yeah. know. I don't know. And it's it, just this is just another 
piece to me, this is another piece of the mystery. The fact that they go back 10 years later for this meeting and it goes well, that is another piece to consider to figure out what was in that letter. Right on. Yeah, I agree. I think it is worth considering. By the way, a good point from Nina here is he still calls himself King of the Roinar. He still declares himself their king, even though he signed this treaty of eternal peace. He didn't stop calling himself their king, even though it didn't have any like real authority behind it. And of course, they're going to keep saying that until it actually does become true, you know, 160 years later, 170-ish. Anyway, here's another point from Nina. Maybe Aegon applied a Westerosi lesson he might have learned on his progresses and made a point of a public show of guest right, asking for bread and salt for himself and his son, of course. That would be important. Rather than just showing up and being like, hey, this is a good, like, observing the forms, diplomatic forms, this would be a quite possible because that's an ultimate sign using westerosi culture of you know i'm going to not murder you while you're here and if i do then i deserve all the whatever all the chagrin all the retribution shame yeah like like whatever walder Frey deserves he this is what they would deserve because yes he he did give rob bread and salt and then still did all that so it is a paper shield but it's a pretty big paper shield and it's good on both sides too. Both it's 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 yeah. assuring on both sides that this is going to go over well, and it's they're both bought into Westerosi culture. Yeah, and they showed up on their dragons. It's not like there isn't the unspoken threat there to back and was like, hey, if you murder us, who knows what those dragons will do? <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know. Uh, so yeah, and we know it was Daria Martell ruling. We know Nymor died during that ten years. He might have died right after the peace. He might have died right before this peace dinner. We don't really know. But either way, seeing Diria again would be a pretty big deal. I mean, she is the one who led that peace delegation. So whether it was Nymor, you know, Nymor this, Nymor that, Diria is the one who actually came to King's Landing and handed the letter to Aegon and was like, for your eyes only, your grace. She's the one that took the risk to her person traveling with Meraxes' skull through dangerous territory. She's the one that would have been seized and had awful things happen to her if the suggestions at court had been accepted. Right. Like make her, you know, put her in a brothel, you know, cut her hand off, all those things. Like, so this is not an, this is a person who's been in the dragon's mouth and walked back out. This is just a person that's, that's gone through some things. She's brave or at least had done a very brave thing. This is in some very fundamental ways different from the rest of the progresses, but in some ways very similar too. like you said, like bringing the dragons with them is just this reminder, like. We're not at war right now, but don't forget we still have these dragons. You know, if if you prompted us, we would just start burning you, burning your your fields and your your cities and everything down again. We, we haven't, you know, lost what we had before. Yeah. Know, so. so it's interesting to trace this meeting to what's going to happen when Aegon dies. When Aegon dies, of course, lots of things are going to erupt. Dorne is one of them. The Vulture King will emerge and attack the Reach or the 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 marches, which includes the Reach, but Mostly the Stormlands, really. Deary is going to claim, I have nothing to do with this. I got, you know, this isn't my, pe- you know, this is Vulture King is, is a rebel. You know, I have, but is he? <laughs> we, well, it's, it's certainly there's the idea that he might be a, a proxy or that she's helping him in secret, that she really didn't get him started, but she's happy to help him in secret and to maybe do some things here and there. Or just not going after him in and of itself. Exactly. Just ignoring it. Yeah. And saying, oh, well, this is out of my hands. Yeah. So if. When she takes the measure of Prince Aenys here and sees what kind of man he is, learns the kind of person he is, and then gets to see the next 14 years, actually, would be the right number. <laughs> and judging the kind of person he is and, and 
guesstimating that, hey, we could get away with this under him. We might not be able to under Aegon, but under this guy? Yeah, absolutely. So, yep, that's quite a thing. Let's turn our uh, our eyes back to the internal Targaryen uh, scenario and talk about their marriages. Quote. The tradition amongst the Targaryens had always been to marry kin to kin. Wedding brother to sister was thought to be ideal. Failing that, a girl might wed an uncle, a cousin, or a nephew, a boy, a cousin, aunt, or niece. This practice went back to Old Valyria, where it was common amongst many of the ancient families, particularly those who bred and rode dragons. The blood of the dragon must remain pure. The wisdom went. Some of the sorcerer princes also took more than one wife when it pleased them, though this was less common than incestuous marriage. That last line is very peculiar and, and needs to be explored elsewhere. It doesn't have much to do with what we're talking about today. But the fact that it's sorcerer princes that did this and maybe not some of the other ones makes me really curious because when we asked George about blood magic and, and incest in Old Valyria, he did say that the blood magicians also practiced incest. So maybe, and it sounds like these things are related. If you have people who practice blood magic and you have Valyrian princes from the 40 families, some of them are both, and maybe that's who these sorcerer princes are. And maybe that's why they practice polygamy and or incest, because if they have permanently affected their own genetics, they want to be able to spread that by having children. Now, it's still very interesting as well that polygamy is less common than incestuous marriage, and Aegon's was both. Aegon practiced a polygamous incestuous marriage, so he just clearly thought he was above both that. I don't know. I don't know what he thought of himself as compared to the others. He probably just did what he thought he could get away with and... That's fine from where he's sitting, which is the Iron Throne. That's where he's sitting. This also clar clarifies for us that they don't seem to have any qualms about any old pairing within the family. Aunt to nephew, you know, little boy to a cousin. It doesn't matter. Like any related, if it's if it works, it works for them. And apparently a lot of things work. Uh, I guess all they really cared about was will this match produce children? A little <laughs> rhyme for you. Where they're a, like, a rhyme? Yeah. I love a good rhyme. Relate it, consummate it. <laughs> <laughs> nice that, those were the targaryens real house words before they came to westeros they were like well, related yeah, we and consummated <laughs> incest is the best put your family yeah. to the test yeah that's right they, yeah, they, that's, they, that's that they live that. that's the whole nation of valyria's <laughs> motto <laughs> it's like it's like in god we trust for america or whatever <laughs> let's have another quote continuing on with the incest practice and valyrian marriages etc in Valyria, before the doom, wise men wrote, a thousand gods were honored, but none were feared. So few dared to speak against these customs. This was not true in Westeros, where the power of the faith went unquestioned. Maybe oh, that's why. Oh. What would you say? I was like, I don't know why it was completely unquestioned. Yeah. Like, okay, I think there's some questioners. There is some people questioning the power of the faith, definitely. For example, the Targaryens. Like, Magor absolutely questions their power later and puts it to the test. Or in the North, which is, is technically part of Westeros right now at this very moment. And yeah, then they're at definitely the writing. questioning it. And Anyways. the Iron Islands questions it, too. Yeah, I think, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the priests of R'hllor. Yeah, lots of people question it. But that might be part of it. Maybe they were the, the Targaryens were just so used to doing whatever they wanted and, and it was just accepted that maybe they thought that the faith would give them a little bit of a pass. I don't know. Really powerful people can sometimes just... It, it seems like a stretch to us, but when you have such power and privilege, it's you might 
think that you can get away with things that to us would be like unthinkable. I guess also you could clarify, like maybe the Iron Islands question that the power of the faith is greater than their own God's power or question it whether it should be worshipped or even whether it exists. But you can't question that the faith has power. Right? Yeah. Maybe not mm-hmm. ultimate power, maybe not the power we care about, but it clearly has power. Yeah. So, yeah, and clearly has a lot of power. And, and that's part of why Aegon cozied up to it. He's like, well, I'm going to I'm not going to take on this power structure. I'm going to sit at the try to sit at the top of it <laughs> or at least make it my friend. And it starts to really matter because this is when the princes and princesses start to be born. The big purpose of this episode is to show the the first birth of the of the House of the Dragon in terms of family members. And these are family members that are going to be set to marry each other eventually. And that's where the problems begin, or at least where the problems uh, are exacerbated. While Aenys was at this peace dinner in Sunspear, it appears that his wife, Alyssa, was pregnant. Because later in the year, Reyna is born. This is Aegon's first grandchild. We're told he cried when he first held her, which is a curious moment given all of the stoicism and lack of personality assigned to him. But it might also be because of Rainey's. Like, she's named for Rainey's. This would have been her grandchild. It's a girl. It might look like her. Probably does in terms of hair and eyes. I mean, they, they have that sort of, I wouldn't say it's all homogenous, but they it's, it's a rare trait that only they have for the most part in Westeros. Now, I'm not someone who thinks crying is weakness. And many societies and throughout history didn't either. Like, if you ever read, like, Homer... Not Simpson, but <laughs> the, I did make that joke every single time because it never gets old. But uh, and, it makes and, me laugh every time. Yeah. So why would I stop? Right. <laughs> Achilles and the Greeks of the Trojan War did not think it was unmanly. For example, he cries a bunch of times. Right. He, he cries when he's mad. He cries when he's. Yeah. Just just what they did. It was considered normal and acceptable showing emotion. What's the big deal in world with the same thing? The car theme. They weep often and and freely and. It's not unmanly. So George certainly acknowledges that there's just different societal views on men crying. In Westeros, it is unmanly. Let's be clear. I'm not trying to make a point about what it should be like in Westeros versus what it is. It is considered unmanly by a lot of people in Westeros, especially the powerful people in Westeros. So that's why it's a curious moment. The fact that they would write this, the fact that it might be true. It definitely humanizes Aegon a bit, assuming it's true. And Visenya immediately proposes, proposes, not opposes, the opposition will come from the other people, proposes betrothing Reyna to Magor. There's a big age gap, but, you know, obviously, given what we just said with these quotes, it's not that strange, especially given the the girl is the younger one, which is the less unusual pairing. Like when you have a a one-year-old boy married to a 12-year-old girl, that is a little unusual. Well, a marriage would be very unusual there. A betrothal would be. But yeah. even that, even that happens, especially because that is what's going to happen to Megor, in fact. <laughs> now, you can see the sense in this arrangement, though, even with the, despite the, the age gap, it unites the two lines. It, it removes questions of succession. It is, this is when I, we talk about Visenya and her aim with her son earlier. This says, Unity between the families, two branches of the family. She's trying to create unity. Yes, it's also a power move for her branch of the family, which is the lesser branch in terms of prestige. But you can't just put it all on that. I mean, because it absolutely would have created stability in theory. Of course, who knows how it would have really gone if they had actually gotten married and all that. But And it doesn't take away power from the other branch either. Right. right? In fact, in almost any other marriage, 
takes more power away than this would. Yeah, so. it, it makes it one branch. It almost just create. Yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. So now it could have complicated. Things could have been complicated by this arrangement if Anis and Alyssa followed up with a son. So now you have Magor and Reyna married together, and then they have a son. So who gets precedence? Because you could say, well, Reyna, you say, well, they Zenya wasn't Lady of Dragonstone, so the Targaryens clearly have this male thing going on, so it should pass to the boy. But if Magor is already married to Reyna, they've already got a paired Targaryen princess prince, why would they skip that over? You know, it, it, so it might have it might have caught it might have actually created some new complications rather than just settling the other ones. So it's, it's possible that could have been a problem. Some other complications might have come from the 12 year old aggressive arrogant boy going through puberty expected to wait for the newborn baby to grow up and marry him like he's gonna sleep around right that's and possible probably have yeah. some bastards or not mm. agree to the marriage or uh, who knows but that's probably not going to go perfectly smooth the way all the adults want good point and either way it comes up the rejections come immediately apparently Aegon never weighs in which is interesting the high septon's like no and he says, no, we we can't accept that. And Aenys and Alyssa say no, too. So that's just it. And like, unless Aegon orders them to accept it, that's the end of it. So this could really matter later. This rejection could matter. Keep this in your back pocket. Don't forget about this rejection. It might be, per it might be taken personally by Visenya, by Megor, or by both of them. We know why the High Septon says no. That's very straightforward. But it's actually not quite so straightforward. It's not just about the incest marriage. Because <laughs> Aenys and Alyssa go ahead and marry their children together anyway. <laughs> so they weren't worried about that. They weren't worried about the incest aspect to, to Magor and, and Reyna. They go ahead and marry their daughter and their son together anyway. So that's not it. Uh, but Magor is going to marry a Hightower. So his refusal to accept Magor's marriage to Reyna does become his does become a marriage to the family that's closest to the, the High Septon. I wonder why did uh, Annie's refuse it? Why, I wonder what their angle was. I don't know. It might have been more about Alyssa. Alyssa didn't seem to like Magor, and uh, oh gosh, I wonder why. <laughs> I mean, the dude was full of red, was a walking red flag, but it might have just been that, just that Magor was like... No, we don't. We don't want that. Or they wanted to keep it within their own family. They 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 were set on having a son, yeah. to marry their daughter, and that's what they wanted. Yeah, they were like, let's it, yeah. marry her to our firstborn son, keep it age appropriate. And again, I think it's very likely they both or one or whatever saw Magor's red flags. Yeah, he's twelve at this time. Well, keep that in mind. He had no friends. He'd already shown violence towards animals. And violence, maybe violence towards, like, servants. So, yeah. Lots of red flags. <laughs> and they might have been worried about his ambition. He might have shown red flags about ambition as well, which would have been, ooh, yeah, like, what's he going to do? Like, we don't want to marry our daughter to this man. Just for, as parents, we don't want this man to marry our, our daughter. Just that's that, that simple. It could be that simple. But I imagine it isn't just one reason. It's probably multiple reasons. Yeah. And I'm still just it's really interesting about Ma Aegon not weighing in at all that we know of. Maybe he just agreed. He's like, yeah, let's let's not do that. <laughs> and he, but he didn't feel the need to say so because it would rub it in Visenya and, and Magor's faces. But they still might they might have been upset that he didn't force it or weigh in. They'd be like, 
Why don't you have a, a, something to say here, <laughs> King? Dad, yeah, I mean, husband. I, I, I wonder if he was like, it's the prerogative of the parents. They are my... the parents. I am not. It's not my decision. He's the king someday. I don't tell who. To, I'm not going to decide who marries who unless I have to. And yeah, to. except he or his agents had been doing that for people left their cro- left and right yes. across the realm. <laughs> yeah, so it's weird to suddenly now not do it. But for not, his own but family. not like, for his heir and the future king and like who's now has his firstborn child I, I don't know i could see it as being this is your you know testing ground as it were and this is your one of your first big things that you're doing on your own i don't know i think him treating yeah. anies differently than everyone else in the realm makes sense that makes sense yeah he maybe he needed to give his son his own agency it's 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 one of those interesting things though like if this were made into a show there would be a lot of drama around this. I mean, just think about the scene when Olena and Marjorie go to question Sansa about Joffrey, right? Like, that, there might be some parallel to that. I, I wonder how much Anis was blind to it or very aware of it and how much anyone else would have had to be like, no, look, like, Anis, be real with yourself. He's not all there or something like that. Or if Anis knew it and, like... That's my question, is whether Aenys kind of had rose-colored glasses and wanted to love... Because, like, think about this. This is, like, his little brother, right? And, like, you yeah, might little. Think, <laughs> yeah, yeah, but you might think that he would have some real, like, warmth in his heart for him. And not one of... Especially he's 12 years old only. He might be like, no, he's still a boy. He's still growing. You, you might think that Aenys wouldn't just uh, think of him as a lost cause. Yeah. Aenys is 17, by yeah, the way, yeah, just to remind ourselves yeah. at this point. Alyssa also 17. We see Viserys let Damon get away with a lot too. Oh yeah, right? very yeah. true, very true. But we also see, I think Viserys is not unaware of his proclivities or issues as well, yeah. right? Like he isn't completely just like blinders on either. Yeah, and, Vis- and, we, and Viserys did have, did show some spine occasionally. Now, uh, Aenys will as well. Aenys is going to like exile Magor, which is, you obviously don't do that lightly and that showed some, he wasn't afraid of him, you know? But he, he had to be pushed pretty far, kind of like Viserys had to be pushed pretty far to, to like come down on Damon. So yeah, so maybe just Aegon. Another way to look is maybe, maybe Aegon just isn't that active of a family patriarch. He's like you said, Sean. He's more concerned with the realm. He's on his progresses all the time, and Aenys was with him a lot of these progresses, and Alyssa was as well. Although this would be her participation in the progresses would have to slow down, I think, because she's about she's going to have five children over the next ten years ish. So definitely pregnancies and royal progresses aren't always able to happen at the same time i mean you know you're one or two months in sure travel a bit but well, that's my other question six is, months pregnant no you're not going on royal progress well how many times were they like out on royal progress and they're like oh i'm, oh, she's I'm pregnant. pregnant and then they like <laughs> stay somewhere longer or fly her back on the yeah. dragon quickly i don't know that's nice you could just take her dragon back home yeah yeah, yeah. So I, I don't know yeah, i'm not sure if i think it's more or less likely but uh for air force one targaryen force one just fly that back to- <laughs> <laughs> i guess hers would be Force four. Yeah. <laughs> Valerian's number one. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So, yeah. It's, it's just really interesting how Aegon just doesn't pop up. All these family disputes, all these things that happen. It's like, like, why isn't Aegon? He just isn't present for any of this. It's just really interesting how often he's just like, well, yeah, figure it out yourselves, y'all. Which I somewhat respect. Figure it out yourselves. But you kind of... She should weigh in sometimes. You know, they, they're they 17, like I just said. Like, <laughs> like, yes, it's good to like let them be adults, but... They're not. I mean, by the standards of his society, they are, but they're teenagers. Come on. Come on, man. <laughs> yeah, and it's also not super clear to me where, like, the rest of the family spent their time. Because the tar- the 20s were a decade where the Targaryen family exploded in terms of numbers. As Aenys and Alyssa, like I said, just kept having kids. And, well, where where were they? Were, were they king- at the 
Aegon Fort? Were they at Dragonstone? Like, which which was their place to be in between? Because we hear about this incident where Alyssa teases Magor about not having a dragon. It's like, what, are you afraid, you know? And we'll come back to that later. But that clearly means they were at the same location at that time. And Reyna, the firstborn, is going to take on, like, the real older sister mode. She's going to mother her younger siblings. And I wonder if that's partly because her parents were gone a lot on their progresses or whatever. She kind of had to be a second mother to her younger siblings because her parents were king and queen and, well, they're rather busy and traveling a lot and didn't have time to be full-time parents. And a lot of ner- they were probably raised a lot by maesters and nursemaids and other servants and men-at-arms and things like that. So Reyna seems to have had that nurturing instinct. And, yeah, so... Probably back and forth. I mean, there's probably no, there isn't one answer to this. Sometimes they would be at Dragonstone. Sometimes they would be at King's Landing. Sometimes they would be at the Aegon Fort. Later, they'll be at the Red Keep. But the Red Keep won't exist until after Aegon's reign is over. It will be started during it, but it won't be finished till later. So there has to have been some movement here and there. And that would create all sorts of interesting different scenarios with different people and different flexible court scenarios of different people there. And anyway, I'm rambling. Let's move on. You know, there's a lot of ways that you can describe something you like to get people interested in it. And if you're a a show like ours, if you describe a product that you use or that you're pitching, of course, one of the reasons you're pitching it is because you've got a company paying you to do that. So you want something a little, sometimes it's good to have a little more real information like behind the scenes like what's really going on here are they just pitching this product to me because they're being paid or do they really like it well one of the best ways i think we can prove that we are really really genuinely behind this magic mind beverage is that they gave us a good amount of it to help you know it they gave us a box of it we drank it they gave us another box of it we dressed both locations sean in denver and me and shay here in, in atlanta because it takes a while to, for it to work, you got to drink it for a while for some of the effects to really take hold. So it makes sense that we'd spread that out a bit. Now, it's been a few months, so we've mostly run through our free product. Ashay and I bought it uh, ourselves. We're still pitching it, but we bought it with our own money. I did too. I mean, I think that says a lot. I mean, right? You, We actually have invested in this ourselves. So yeah, we're, uh, we're fully bought in, I guess you could say. And you can go to get some yourself. You can get in it with us. Magicmind.com Westeros is where you can go to get 56% off your subscription. If you use the code Westeros20, it can be a little more, but there's always got, they've always got some sort of special going on. So whenever you do hear this and decide it's time to begin Magic Mind, and I hope that's soon, use that code Westeros20. And the sooner the better, though, because the deal right now is particularly good. And also, the sooner the better for you to start having better focus, maybe drinking less coffee, maybe thinking a little more clearly. And that has a trickle-down effect on the rest of your life. If you if the early part of your day goes well, then your evenings will probably go better as well. That's I tend to crash earlier if my day starts badly, you know, and I think, uh, I think Magic Mind's helped out with that. So yeah, Westeros20, magicmind.com slash Westeros. Okay, let's move on. Let's talk a little bit update on our topics moot going over going on over at patreon.com slash history of Westeros. We ran an authorial poll and then a historical influence poll and then ran the winners of those two polls against each other. 
And the top vote getter was The Wars of the Roses. So we'll be doing an episode on that. It might actually take more than one. We'll see. And an episode on Rome, Rome's parallels and influence on A Song of Ice and Fire. But in third place was a tie. So we're going to have to have a runoff. That's pretty exciting. We have never had a poll runoff before. Figures. Where did it run off to? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> I don't know. It ran, it ran off to tie the knot. Mm. <laughs> so we're going to, yeah, we're, we're going to have a runoff for that. Like I said, it's the first time it's ever happened. Pretty exciting. Figures that it would happen during Topics Moot, something poll related that's never happened to us before. And the runoff is between J.R.R. Tolkien and the Black Dinner. The Black Dinner was the influence for the Red Wedding, and J.R.R. Tolkien is J.R.R. Tolkien, the guy who wrote Lord of the Rings. Of course you've heard of him. He's uh, the, George R. R. Martin's favorite author, so that's obviously a big influence on him. He was also an inspiration for one of South Park's characters. <laughs> <laughs> yes i suppose that's true <laughs> uh, we also have a poll running right now young pov character versus young non-pov characters we did one poll for each and the winners advanced to compete against each other at the end the six winners which are currently being voted on are amon melisandra old nan so young nan for purposes of that episode jamie lannister varus and barriston one of those is not like the others and i mean you jamie lannister because all these characters are pretty old. <laughs> it makes sense that people would pick, for looking at their young life, people would pick characters that have a lot of relatively younger life to talk about. You know, the older you are, the more your young life can span, I suppose. The and yeah. thing I found funny was that Jamie got like a good 20 or 30 more votes than Cersei. Yeah. Even though and they both crushed Tyrion, too. Yeah. Like. <laughs> and even though it's a, a similar childhood. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, th- I find it funny, the idea that we could do an episode on The War of the Roses. Yeah, it's going to take more Rome, than Rome, for that matter. Yeah. <laughs> Rome might actually be less, because I think the influences are not so huge. There's some big ones, and Rome itself is just so influential. Yeah. But, you know. I think like, about what? it every day. <laughs> <laughs> you think about the Roman Empire every day, of course, like the meme says, you know, and uh, yeah, because it's like Westeros isn't particularly like Rome. Slaver's Bay and Old Valyria have some things in common. But yeah, there, there's things to say, that's for sure. And we'll be digging into that because that was the second highest vote getter. All right, let's uh, let's get back to our topic today. We are in the year 25 AC now. Magor has a big year. There's a melee. He's 13 years old and he wins it. Veteran knights taken down by Magor. Very proud moment for him. Very proud for his dad and his mom, most likely. Visenya's probably nodding and like, that's right, that's my son right there. And then she marry or then he marries Cerise Hightower in Old Town. She was 23, so instead of someone instead of marrying someone 12 years younger than him, he married someone 10 years older than him. It was the melee at Old Town too. Might have been. Might have been. I don't know. We have no idea where the melee was, but he married her the same year, so it makes sense. Old Town would be a likely enough place for such an event, but really, it could have been anywhere. It could have been King's Landing. Probably not Dragonstone. It's a little bit remote, but it's possible. And it's a political marriage that has a lot of sense to it. For Aegon, it, again, connects him to the Faith, who he's trying to cozy up to, and the High Towers are about as close as you can get to the Faith. And Cerise was the niece of the current High Septon, as well as the daughter of the Lord of the High Tower. So, it really ties them directly to both. There's another. So when we say it's a perfect marriage, like Cerise was a really perfect candidate because of her unique connection to both the High Septon and House Heis Hat. I always struggle to say House High Tower, which is part of why they were willing to be a little loose with the ages here. They're like, yeah, 13 year old boy, 23 year old woman. That's not usually how they do these marriages, but it's not exactly unprecedented either. He was so sure. Now we go into some more detail on this in our Under the Dragons House High Tower episodes. There's two of them, but 
we're focusing on it from the Targaryen angle this time. A son for House Targaryen is what Maegor declared he made very confidently that wedding night, but of course he did not. Uh, had he done so, it would have been the first grandson for Aegon. And that's an interesting race, you know, like where they was Maegor wanting to have the first grandson for the house. You know, he's like, well, he wasn't the first son, but he could make the first grandson. Uh, but no. The other reason for him to want that is that might be a son to marry Reyna. If his son marries Reyna, who's all, that would be age appropriate. And it would be harder for Aenys and Alyssa to say no to that. And they might not say no to it because, like, just because it's Magor's son doesn't mean it's going to be like Magor. They might be worried about that. And they might want to hold off for a few years just to find out if he's got the Magor, you know, DNA, too much of it. But it would be harder to say no to. Not from the High Spectrum's perspective. Although maybe it would have because that would have been a Hightower baby as well. So, hmm, what a what an interesting child that would have been. A bo- if Magor had had a boy with Cerise Hightower before Reyna and Aenys had their baby Aegon. Oh boy, would that have been interesting. You know, another motivation for Magor to have a son is... Cerise Hightower might have just been hot. <laughs> That's true. That's good motivation right there. Yeah. <laughs> and so this is the Greens before the Greens, right? This was, this was, the, if they had had any kids, it would have become like a scenario a lot like the Greens. But since they had no children, then that just was cut off before it could become a thing. And it still was kind of a thing. It just wasn't as much as a thing as it could have been because there wasn't other princes and princelings involved and other like alliances would have been made. Other marriages would have been made and it would have just made the whole thing a bigger mess. Yeah. And because of the way Westeros is such a patriarchal society, if Magor has a son, that just makes him more of a man. That's just how Westeros works. It's kind of hard for us to think on those terms or to put ourselves in those shoes. But fathering sons is considered manly. Fathering daughters is considered manly, too. But he couldn't do either. <laughs> but especially fathering sons is considering manly in, in Westeros. As much as, yeah, she's supposed to father sons, be good at fighting, and not cry. That's <laughs> Westeros manhood in a, <laughs> in a nutshell right there. And Magor continues to refuse hatchlings all throughout this time. He's still like, no, I don't want any, I don't want any stupid hatchling. A half dozen different hatchlings he refuses. So it's clearly not about the color or the, the, the horns or how long the neck is or whatever other <laughs> traits you look for in a hatchling. And we don't know when this happened. This probably wasn't just like one day they brought him six hatchlings on a platter and he refused them all. It was probably one in the first year, then another one a few months later. And then here's another one that just hatched. Maybe he likes green. Here's a green dragon for you, Magor. No, he doesn't like green. Well, here's a here's a pink one. No, he definitely doesn't like pink. So this might be when Alyssa teased him about not about being afraid of dragons. And there's a chance she knew. She figured it out. Alyssa's smart. She might understand what he's doing by refusing these hatchlings. She might get that he's waiting for the big one. Because what else would he be doing? She doesn't really think he's scared. <laughs> you know? I don't. That doesn't make sense. But if she does the old back to the future, what are you, chicken? Are you yellow? <laughs> All that sort, that sort of thing? Then yeah, it might actually work to make Magor lose his cool and like, no, I'm not chicken. Yeah. I'll tame a dragon right now. Didn't work. Didn't, Didn't work, work, but it was but, worth a try. Yeah. Because that's a very powerful spell. Those four words, it's the simplest cast spell in Westeros. What are you scared? Or, and like variations, like Ashea said, what are you chicken? Or why are you scared? It's the most provocative question in Westeros. <laughs> it's also very provocative in 1985. <laughs> 
and in the old west yes uh, <laughs> it's a it's the and most powerful the spell on men it's ever existed the most powerful four words <laughs> ever existed for challenging uh, aggressive men yeah <laughs> you have to use the right inflection and tone right what are you scared like it adds more juice to this it's like more mana is put into the spell especially if you say it like coming that. from Alyssa, like herself a woman yeah. exactly yes that's yeah. right right so she may have figured it out that he was trying to go for a bigger dragon and might have been like well i don't want him to do that maybe i can talk him into <laughs> through through shame <laughs> into taking a smaller dragon now that's another scenario i'd want to see the details play out on screen but I, I bet he was motivated by that and did want to tame a dragon if Asenia had to stop him he's like no yeah i'm like no wait patience my son <laughs> I haven't counseled you patience in many things, but patience in this one <laughs> is a good thing. I wonder which hatchlings those were. I mean, Dreamfire doesn't work. Dreamfire is the oldest one I could think of, but Dreamfire is a hatchling a few years from now, so it doesn't quite work. I don't think they stay hatchlings for six years or eight years, so I don't think that works. My best guess is one of them was the cannibal. And boy, if a dragon ever exudes Magor's personality, it's that one. The, the one that eats its own, you know, and, and it has no loyalty towards its own so much so. Uh, and it's even black with green eyes, just like Shaggy Dog. Those colors, something about that coloration is very demonic or self-fighting if you think about the blacks versus the greens when the cannibal was alive. So... Again, yeah, so again, Mago, Aemon comes back to us here. Aemon will, will wait and then claim Vagar as soon as Vagar comes available. Similar, very similar. And in, fa and in fact, who, <laughs> not to confuse y'all, but who was the rider of Vagar before Aemon? It's Lena. From one faction to another is kind of the point. The big dragon shifts factions. So this is also the same year that King's Landing moves into third place size-wise. Bigger than Gulltown and White Harbor, better access to foreign markets because of its proximity to the free cities as compared to like Old Town and Landisport. It's, it's closer to them. Lots of merchants would see an opportunity to get in on the ground floor in a burgeoning market. Well, get in on King's Landing in the year 25, you're sitting pretty another 10 years go by. You've, you've established. You've got 10 years in the city that's grown around you and your your business will grow with it. Might be easier to get started at a new city than it is to break into the existing markets of Lannisport and, and Old Town where they already are probably well occupied by the existing rich powers, right? Like the existing, got to be in with the high towers. You got to be in with the Lannisters or at least the people that they're in with to, to get a good deal, get some breaks on customs or whatever. And especially when you consider like the scale of things and the age of these cities, like it's not necessarily even like these upper lords you're competing with, just the, the, the random local farmers, they already own their land and pass it on in their families for generations on all the area around Lannisport or Old Town or wherever else. But King's Landing, there's plenty of new farmland for anyone to make a stake on, right? Yeah, absolutely. And a lot of the lords of the Narrow Sea as well, their fortunes rose significantly. Driftmark and Dragonstone itself, and of course, Massey's Hook and Claw Isle. These places have gained significant wealth and power, just partly just because of their connection to the Targaryen royal house, but also just because this era of growth has, has enabled everyone. The rising tide lifts all boats. So all the free cities would trade with them more too. They'd all have more money to spend, and they'd all be potential in routes to the Targaryens like make friends with the Celtigars maybe that gets me in with the Targaryens later that might not they might not have cared about that as much 100 years ago and, and they would have less reason to so it all it all stands to reason so new connections for the lords of the narrow sea 
all sorts of benefits in this region and, and growth. Consider the difference in perspective that we turn it back to the human side of things. Aegon and Visenya and Oris and, and Ethan Valarian and Osmond Strong and a lot of these other guys would remember what it was like before King's Landing even existed. And now you have these new Targaryens, these kids on my lawn, on their lawn, who were born into a world where it's already the third largest city in, a, in, in just like a generation and a half. Or maybe you can call it two generations. I don't know. It's just a world of difference. Like the world, when in my day, we didn't have this giant smelly city. <laughs> you know, like it literally wasn't here, you know. And these aren't like old people. Like these aren't like people in their 80s and 90s. This isn't like Walder Frey, like I lived during the Blackfire Rebellions. No, this is, this wasn't that long ago. This is like us thinking back on like 9-11 or something or something, the turn of the century. Like it's not that long ago, historically speaking, but from a perspective wise, like no city versus huge city. That's just such a bigger difference. And like Reyna and Alyssa and Aegon and young Aegon were born into this world where King's Landing existed and, and Aegon and Visenya were like, yeah, these kids today don't know what it was like before. <laughs> the following year is the year 26. So the year 25 was one of the most bustling years. 26, a little less so. Mm. But Aegon was born, the first grandson. Pretty big deal. So all the uh, Magor must have been disappointed. Visenya maybe as well. Uh, certainly Alyssa and Aenys were not disappointed. They may have been relieved. Who knows? Like they were like, oh, phew, we beat Magor. You know, <laughs> didn't want that to happen. And now it, it just seals it all up. Like, okay, we can keep it within the family. So as they're maybe relaxing a bit, knowing that they can create, keep it all on their side of the family, that creates problems down the road for how the faith is going to react to all this. And it will be a big problem. Oren Baratheon's going to be born the same year as well. He's going to have an entertaining life. A life that will entertain us. <laughs> us readers. Mm, he's not necessarily going to be a happy person or have things go out. Will go well for him. But he is going to provide us with some entertainment. He's a younger brother of Rogar Baratheon, who, of course, will be driving all the Baratheon activity moving forward, starting... Right around the time Aenys becomes king. So we're still a decade away from that. But I like to point out when these figures are born because their early lives matter too. It's also the year the walls are finished. So we talked about those walls, that walls project took six years. And this would be a good example of like another mark in King's Landing's growth that would be a, a milestone in its development that would parse its existence as a difference between those who saw it when it was young or non-existent. Uh, versus those who are like, wow, it got walls today, you know? <laughs> that's a change. Like, yep, that's nothing compared to when it wasn't here at all. Not much to say about the year 27, so we'll skip to the year 28. There was a great tournament at Riverrun in the year 28. This was possibly still Lord Edmund Tully. We don't know how long he lived. Remember, this is the guy that became Hand of the King in the year 7 and then quit in the year 9 when his wife died in childbirth. And he's also, of course, the same guy that's Lord Paramount of the Trident. And that might be, you know, he's doing his thing as Lord Paramount, throwing a tournament. And this is a great tournament, not just a small tournament. Great tourney, like one of the, like, like Ashford Meadows or something like that. So if he were not Lord Paramount of the Trident, he might not have had this tournament. And honestly, honestly, it probably wasn't Lord Edmund by this time, but it, it might have been. I mean, Aegon's still alive. So why not Lord Edmund? Either way, the more important thing that happened at this event, I think, is that Magor increases his reputation. You remember he won that melee before, which was pretty impressive. But this time, 
He beats three knights of the King's Guard in a row in the joust. He does eventually lose to somebody. We don't know who. And then goes on to win the melee. So he's won another melee. And that's as impressive as it sounds. Like, I, we have no reason to think people were losing to him on purpose like we sort of suspect might have happened for Rhaegar at the tournament at, L- at Lansport. Not that Rhaegar wasn't a good warrior. He was. But we still have evidence to suggest the possibility that they lost him on purpose because of Tywin's plan to marry him to Cersei. But regardless, there's none of that here. Megar's already married. You know, maybe they just want to make Magor look good, but it doesn't seem very likely. Three different knights of the Kingsguard agreeing to lose after he's already proven himself a great warrior. I, this seems legit to me. I have no reason to suspect it's not. I think there's some reason to suspect it's not, but I I don't... I think the default is to accept it. Yeah. But I think there is some reason. Because we've seen other examples of bouts being thrown, and there, there might even be some fear of retribution for Magor if they beat him mm, or something like okay. that. Okay, so. yeah, that's possible. Now, one of those three knights of the Kingsguard might have been this very same Lord Commander Coralise Velaryon that we've mentioned a few times that would be brother to the Master Ships, Lord Ethan, and would be thus a relation, probably the uncle of, of Alyssa. So if the division between the family is started by this point, if the, the lines between the Aenys branch and the Magor branch have, have developed... If they're a thing already, well, that would be a reason to not lose to him on purpose for sure. Like, Lord, if, if, if the Lord Commander is taking the side of his kin, he's definitely not tanking it for, for Magor. And he's also not going to be afraid of him, I don't think. I mean, this is the Lord Commander of the Kingsguard. He's probably not afraid of anybody. Meanwhile, Magor is rewarded for this by being knighted. Becomes the youngest knight in the realm. And that's why I mentioned this whole did anyone lose on purpose thing. Because the youngest knight in the realm, and he happens to be a, a, a prince... It seems like he really did earn it, though. It doesn't again doesn't doesn't come off as nepotism. Maybe a little bit, but but not too much. Aegon knighted him personally too, so that had to be a good feeling for Magor, and Visenya would have been happy with that. And it wasn't. It was an impressive accomplishment, assuming it was all as legit as it looked. I will say, it depends on what you mean by earn it, because you know, as you're going to point out here in a second, I think that Gregor might be a legitimate. <laughs> physical force on the battlefield but i don't think he earned being a knight there's more to being a knight than just being a great fighter they they sound yeah i agree and westeros tends to forget that westeros tends to forget about the the non-fighting parts of knighthood which is why people like sandor are disgusted with the 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 idea in the first place and and you get it i understand why sandor hates it because yeah that is a that is pretty blatant society-wide hypocrisy very few people push true knighthood in the way that like a sansa thinks about it or even someone that's not attaching naive views to it which sansa doesn't anymore but <laughs> I, I meant younger sansa of course so yeah you're right to bring up gregor because magor even the name sounds kind of similar <laughs> i mean <laughs> this is a man who will be an awful lot like gregor especially in that they are both awful a lot <laughs> so yeah a lot awful let's move up to the year 29 ac one more year prince viserys is born this is the first viserys that we know of not viserys the first though <laughs> he will eventually be squire to magor and would be very popular in the realm though he will never ride a dragon with those walls finished three years prior they had more options now they could actually afford they were like okay i'm worried about what's going to happen to king's landing when i'm not here now they don't have to worry about that. They're like, well, we got walls. I can go elsewhere and, and we're not so worried about some invasion happening. So they went on the offensive. And by they, I mean the council. Aegon was not part of this. Sir Osmond Strong, Hand of the King, went with Lord Ethan Velaryon, Master of Ships, to the Stepstones to fight Sargoso San, the pirate king and apparent ancestor of Salador. 
Presumably, this is something along the lines of what we see in House of the Dragon or various times when the Stepstones have been a problem for Westeros, which is some sort of pirate king or the equivalent. It might be a nation like Mir or Lys or Volantis or a, a grouping of them, or Tyrosh, holding it and then exacting fines as if there were some sort of pirate king, <laughs> seizing vessels and taking stuff. It's little of one, little of the other. They're, they end up being kind of similar. So that's probably what the Salador, or Sargoso-san fellow was doing. So they had to go after him. They sent their fleet, went after him, and Magor went with them. Oh yeah, 17-year-old Magor... And I got to picture this guy like I, I've my head cannon is like Victorian. He's in his armor. He doesn't have an axe, but he's got dark sister. Right. And whoa. Right. <laughs> dark sister in hand. I think I forgot to mention that he was given dark sister. Would dark uh, sister look a little puny in his hands, though? I wondered <laughs> about that. Yeah. Like, was it? <laughs> for Visenya. It's definitely not a big, big old blade, and he's a big old guy. Yeah, he is a big old guy. Now, Aemon the Dragon Knight was also a large man, and it didn't, apparently, no one ever said it looked small in his hand. And while you won't rework the blade, you might rework the hilt. You could be, give it a bigger hilt, and um, so that would might um, make it more appropriate for Magor's hand. Arnold Schwarzenegger's a big guy, but if he's holding M16, your thought isn't, what a puny gun. <laughs> right? like, he could hold a bigger gun, but a, a sword is a sword. You know, it's, it's still a long sword, even if it's a That's true. relatively small long sword, it's still a long sword. Good point, yeah. So, he must have killed some pirates. I mean, I can't imagine he wouldn't have been, but what a what a sight he was must have made. You're like some pirate on a ship, and you come to... The rails crash together and men are boarding and you're like, that guy hops over the rail. You're like, whoa, I'd rather fight someone else. <laughs> the Ironborn would approve. Victorian would be like, yeah, now that guy, not afraid of drowning. drowning. Yeah, no, honestly, I have no, I have no <laughs> don't idea. Don't fall overboard yeah, in don't your fall armor, overboard. right? Yeah. Now, I have no idea if Magor actually wore his armor. I just feel like he just seems like he would. I'm just like guessing and feel like it's a good guess. Now, he would have had some people with him. He would have had some sworn shields. You know, his father and mother would have been like, well, you're not going entirely by yourself here. You know, I know you're with Lord Ethan, Osmond Strong, but it might not have included Kingsguard. They might have been, it is more princes and princelings for them to guard. And, and let's be honest, Magor needs less guarding <laughs> than just about anyone else in the family. But he's, they still would have had some, some guys with him, probably. And this is important because this is the first time that in under Aegon's reign that they do a martial activity outside of the kingdom, unless you count Dorne, you know. And this wasn't conquest either. So it was it was military action in a nearby territory designed to presumably make things better for them, but would also probably make things better for the free cities around as well. It probably was, except for maybe Lys, because Sargasso San is Lysene, so he might have been backed by elements there. But maybe not, maybe not. It may have also been Sargasso who attacked Tall Trees Town. He might have been the one that... that Pulled off that daring raid, though I imagine they would have said so if, if that was the case. Speaking of important navigators and, and seamen, a sea woman, an important sea woman was born this year, Elissa Farman uh, of Sun Chaser fame. But of course, her, her campaign wouldn't be for a couple decades. And the campaign against Sargoso may not have succeeded. Well, it definitely didn't succeed because they went back the following year. And maybe, I don't think the first time was a disaster, given that it was the exact same group of leaders and Magor again. Uh, or maybe that's just the way it's written, makes it sound like they went twice. Maybe it was just a two-year campaign. I'm not entirely sure. Either way... Depends on how you define success. Yeah. Because right? like, we went to war in Iraq, 
in the 90s. And that was one of the most successful military operations of all time. And when we went back again 10 years later, it doesn't mean we didn't succeed the first time. So. That's true. That's true. And the Sahn family clearly continued. So it didn't wipe them out. Like they, they clearly kept on going. Maybe they just, maybe he just sailed off into the sunset to enjoy his wealth somewhere else. And again, the connections to Lee's here are interesting, not just because they might have been backing him or not, but because Aegon helped the Lyseni at the end of the Century of Blood. Pray recall how he burnt a volunteer fleet that was preparing to invade Lice. So, well, yeah, that's, that's, that's important to keep in mind. Though rebellions were curbed by the thought of Aegon and Balerion, etc., we didn't have any rebellions inside Westeros during Aegon's reign, there were still, you know, smaller-scale problems. Bandit leaders, robber knights, pirate kings, as we just saw, although technically Sargosso wasn't operating in Westeros, he was affecting Westeros. And still, this was another reason to have walls, right? Like a powerful enough bandit leader could have, you know, raided King's Landing. It wouldn't be the same scale. They wouldn't be carrying off slaves to other continents. But it could have done some damage. One example is the so-called Giant of the Trident. We don't know his real name. Must have been a very notable Robert Knight, given he was remembered by the histories. A robber knight is usually not going to be a problem for the king or the hand or the royal family at all, really. That's usually something for just some house to take care of. You know, House Tully, take care of that. House Harrenhal, take care of that. But clearly they didn't. They couldn't. This guy was such a problem that they needed to go up the chain for bigger help. This is kind of like Dagon Greyjoy, who just busted out and started attacking the west coast of Westeros. And Bloodraven's like, Lannisters, Starks, you deal with that. And they tried to. And they couldn't, so he had to send some help, uh, which was embarrassing for uh, everyone <laughs> involved, except <laughs> except the Ironborn. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Who were like, yeah, until they lost, and then they were like, oh, that wasn't worth it, was it? But it was that a great was ride. Yeah. <laughs> so this guy was pretty clearly operating in the Riverlands, given his name was the Giant of the Trident, <laughs> but... And it's hard not to think of Gregor Clegane or the Smiling Knight, who Jamie remembers as the Gregor Clegane of his day, half as big but twice as mad. So... Yeah, there's clearly men like this have exist from time to time. People who are such a problem that the the royal house has to get involved. So yeah, so clearly it's Tullys or the Harrenhals. The Harrenhals? <laughs> the Coharises. Coheri? Uh, I don't even know what to call these people. Could stop him. And the reason I mentioned the Coheri, Gargon the Guest, that awful man who was in charge, he's a Tully grandson. So he's connected to the Lord's Paramount of the Trident, but not, neither the Blackwoods or the Strongs or the Brackens or whoever couldn't stop this guy. So who kills him? Magor. Like a lot of people wouldn't know the red flags about Magor. They wouldn't know that he had harmed animals and that he's a brute. Just from his reputation, though, this is a guy that takes care of business, winning tournaments, killing bandits. Like a lot of people probably liked him. They would maybe change their opinion later, <laughs> but in the early going, before his reputation was fully known, if all you hear about what a, is what a winner he is, you could see why people would, from a distance, might like, yeah, okay, Prince Magor, cool, cool. Wielding of Lyrian Steel Blade with a cool name, I mean, yeah, like that's, yeah, reputation building. Whether Magor actually thought he was keeping the... Pe Magor might have just been like, yeah, I want to fight this guy. I want to fight some dude that thinks he's the giant of the trident. This is the kind of man I want to fight. Again, think of Victorian and how Victorian is such a warrior at heart that he's like, I'd give half my teeth to fight Jamie Lannister. <laughs> <laughs> what kind of mindset is that? Like, he would give his teeth 
just to fight some guy just because it would be a great fight like that's Magor. like Magor's like oh man let me at him let me at him i want to fight this guy because he sees the reputation he sees the prestige that he could earn by beating this man also he just likes fighting as we've seen it's like he wants to fight someone who's a worthy op- a worthy opponent someone that he doesn't have to hold back against because it's not a tournament like actual blood will be drawn can you imagine it's like in the moment it's happening the giant of the trident probably easy to spot in a you know in a battle he's probably got a big standard and he's a large man if the unless it's one of those like sarcastic nicknames like he's <laughs> actually like five foot two and 100 pounds and the giant of the trident once your blood i'm coming for you fear me i'm the giant of the trident magor's like i wanted to prove myself and this is well come on man no but seriously it's all it's everything he wanted (laughs) is a worthy opponent that he could get more fame and and defeat yeah and it also does have to be dealt with like as as we return to the heart of feudalism the king is supposed to deal with things like this and and sending his own son to deal with it is a pretty good way of showing that he's taking a personal stake in this this issue so moving on to the year 32 ac here's a good time as any to note that lord oris one hand is still alive we haven't heard from him in a while but the small chance that he had to inherit the throne is all but gone now right there was a time before any princes had been born and you know it had Aegon died he might have become king but you know, that's long gone. And he has his own large family developing down to Storm's End. So we'll come back to them later. Just wanted to check in real quick there. This is the year 32 AC that Reyna is presented with Dreamfire and bonded with her pretty quickly. She is nine years old at this time. Now, this is really interesting. This is yet another example of someone who starts off a little shy, starts off a little weak, And then when they bond with their dragon, their confidence shoots up. In some cases, it's more than just their confidence, like Aenys himself. It was like, it almost seemed like some of his physical strength was derived from his bond with Quicksilver. So now we see the same thing with Reyna. And who's, again, we have an amazing parallel from A Song of Ice and Fire. Danny. Remember, I'm, bring me my egg, bring me my egg. You know, I want to create, and it brings her strength. She feels stronger when she's holding the egg. She feels the warmth within it, which no one else feels so there's definitely some supernatural element potential here like and if reina felt that if she felt that bond grow and she recognized it that would explain her mothering instinct that would explain why she is the first one to put eggs in the cradles of her younger siblings because she's like well why why wait till they're older Uh, she had that instinct kind of like danny did from beyond something intuitive within her dna told her to do that and if with Danny, that is what it feels like. She's having these dreams of just, you know, mother of dragons, you know, go into the fire, you know, <laughs> hatch the eggs, all this stuff. It's just, it's like voices from the ancient past or voices from her own DNA or both. Reyna seems to have had that too. And I think that's really neat. And, and it, it deserves a f- further look at another time, but we're trying to cover a lot in, in one episode today. Can you take on that, Sean? Pretty cool, huh? Yeah, it's the type of thing I wonder if that was lost in the in the doom somehow if that oh, was something it yeah. surely someone must have been aware of that but in the the turmoil and transition and everything it was lost some of it just comes off like regular confidence like oh i'm a kid i'm a little shy but, oh, but look what i can do i'm proud of myself i've i've taken on this big challenge i'm a confident dragon rider now you know some of that's just like human nature i think but it doesn't like when you throw danny in there and the eggs and that's like there does seem to to be like a mystical element and and i wonder too in this sort of male dominated scenario if it might have been lost something that the the mothers realize we need to put these eggs in the cradles Mm -hmm. so 
she was too old to have done that for her own future husband, Aegon. So she didn't start doing that with him because she was only three when he was born. She didn't have the idea till later. And maybe it's the idea that she gains here bonding with Dreamfire. I, th I think the egg dropping starts right after this, in fact. And interestingly, too, though, Aegon doesn't have a dragon. He also didn't take one. He will have one later. But was he waiting kind of like Magor was? Was he like, I'll also wait for a big one? It's a, definitely an interesting concept here. So uh, we also have to ask the question, did they know they'd be betrothed to each other? Did they wonder about it? I think yes. Uh, Reyna would be nine and Aegon would be six at this time. And the Faith are going to hate it. And a lot of people are going to predictably guess that the Faith would hate it. And once again, I wonder if Aegon had anything to weigh in on here. Did King Aegon just expect this? Did he expect they can deal with this problem themselves? Gildane will suggest in Fire and Blood much later that they knew they were going to marry from very early on. Now, he wasn't there, but I have no reason to doubt him. I don't, assume, I don't assume he just made that up. So it seems to be that was the vibe at, at court at the time that, yeah, everybody expected Reyna and Aegon to marry. And, and of course, that makes sense given Targaryen Valyrian marriage practices. But the question is, what did they expect in terms of consequences, if any? Did they, were they just blind to it? Because they might have been. They might have been that arrogant, that detached, that they just thought the faith would be fine with it or just accept it. Even though they knew the faith wouldn't like it, they'd be like, well, they can, they can handle it. You know, they'll, they'll have to learn to live with it, the faith. It's like, that's not a good attitude to take towards something, an organization with that much military power and that much influence. <laughs> so. Uh, speaking of sowing bad seeds, the problem continues between Aenys and Magor. It's not just the future problems between Aenys and the Faith, and Magor and the Faith, by the way, <laughs> who will have a much bigger problem with them, if we're being honest. As concerned as Aegon with that piece, he didn't seem to perceive or show this kind of concern in the differences with his sons. And as we pointed out earlier, they weren't raised together. So they didn't really have a lot of time to bond. And let's check in with that, because here at the year 32... Aenys is 25 and Magor is 20. A lot longer, a lot farther down the line here. Quote. The half-brothers were never close. Prince Aenys was the heir apparent, and King Aegon kept him close by his side. As the king moved about the realm from castle to castle, so did the prince. Prince Magor remained with his mother, sitting by her side when she held court. Yep. There we go. Sitting by her side when we held court. Yes, yeah, so that's... Familiar. It's kind of restating what we already knew. It's it's the same same deal. It's also, as we've said throughout this episode, it's it's kind of human. There's maybe some reasons that Aegon might have expected to go better, but yeah, having rose-colored glasses on where your own children are concerned is super normal. You know, let's be honest. Lots of people see their own children uh, without the flaws or with the flaws you know made smaller and that's part of parenting you're supposed to love your children despite their flaws so i don't like think that's a bad thing but it definitely can cause problems in ruling families which is why we shouldn't have ruling families <laughs> you know that's yeah. one of many reasons why we shouldn't have that and tywin had the blindness about his own children and their incest you know and what problems that might cause and whether it's even happening or not at least they, at least here we they know it's happening they just are blind to the social problems that it's going to cause later cersei and robert were blind to joffrey's problems oh yeah not completely blind to it not addressing it you know not accounting for it so. yeah and robert was blind to just a lot of other things about his children like them not being his and again we come back to tv viserys and book viserys too although we get more personal with tv viserys so i think he makes a better example for especially because it does reflect what we know about the books with him just like 
just get along. Just stop fighting. Like, yo, that's not going to work. Just telling them to stop fighting isn't going to... You realize what's at stake here. The throne. Just arguing with them and telling them to stop will not work. And it's kind of crazy that you think it will. <laughs> but it's it also very human. It was to start, though, right? Because he was pretty much ignoring it until that point. So, mm -hmm. and... We had a moment of hope at that point, too, that maybe it would. Maybe that appeal, maybe that personal appeal from a... It was just the music that made us feel that, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and again, I repeat that Aegon made it such a point to have everybody together so they would grow up together and, and learn together and, and grow together, but he didn't do that with his sons. Yeah, and and another difference here is that in Viserys' case, these are adult children. You know, with Aegon, they're a, they're a step younger here because Aegon didn't have kids till he was later. Like Viserys started having kids when he was young, Aegon didn't. And Viserys can't use the excuse of being on the road a lot and having to rule the realm. He wasn't exactly doing that. Instead, <laughs> he was doing neither. Whereas Aegon actually was at least trying to rule and was had a difficult, more difficult time of ruling. You know, his time was understandably split. Yeah, you know, if if not maybe not excusably split, but at least understandably split. So. Yeah. So honestly, it seems like Aegon just didn't have a very active role in his family's life at all, except for his firstborn son, who, who he took on progresses and taught him how to rule. And although that didn't go very well, did it? He maybe didn't teach him very well because Aenys was not a good king. And uh, yeah, and maybe he should have been a bigger part of Magor's life. Maybe Magor was harmed by that by not having his dad around. Maybe he took it personally. May have been the case of expedience. The reason Magor was left aside may have been like, it's the equivalent of having a Stark in Winterfell. There must always be a Stark in Winterfell. There must always be a Targaryen in Dragonstone. But we can't have both heirs on the road. That would be an unnecessary risk. What if the whole family is poisoned? What if, yeah. yeah. But them growing apart is clearly a big risk too. One that Aegon has obviously understood already. So it's like he either thought this risk was bigger than the other, or he just kind of, we're back to our rose-colored glasses argument. These, this is definitely not a case of opposites attract. You know, it's not like I'm the protective bigger brother who has to, you know, help his younger brother. Mm. Doesn't really seem like Magor looked at Anis that way. <laughs> Especially because Visenya didn't seem to look at Anis that way, and he may have gotten that from his mom. And maybe Aegon was just getting softer in his older age. Not soft, but softer. Because he was pretty heavy, pretty hard when he was younger. He was extremely happy at being a grandfather. Might have been pretty happy with what he had accomplished in his life and might have thought things were going well. The Targaryen family was in kind of a fragile state, right? Like it didn't have a lot of heirs. There weren't heirs. There weren't a lot of branches of the family. There weren't any other branches of the family. Like I said, there hadn't been a new dragon rider in such a long time. And all of a sudden there's dragon riders happening like every other year. So like as far as the health of House Targaryen, it probably looked really good given where it had been. Using that same dichotomy of before King's Landing... There was nothing here. You know, y'all don't know what it was like 25 years ago. Same thing applies here. We're just pointing at a different target. We're just highlighting a different thing that was much changed over those years. The distinct change in House Targaryen and its its outlook, its power. It's just its quantity, the number of dragon. Now, as we know, the quantity is going to become a problem later. But it wasn't, there weren't too many of them at this point, I think. I Maybe there were. I don't know. I don't know how many dragons is too many dragons but one okay all right one well in that case many. they're already with yeah that's a fair point yes <laughs> and if we think about how old he is you know and you can see you know you're he's in the year 32 he was 57 or 58 years old so he's getting up there you know he had a hard life living on the road this is a man who lived a soldier's life even though he was the king and had it more comfortable than a lot of soldiers would have been still hard living 
you know, yes, feasting and, and luxuries, but also lots of travel, you know, and he wasn't always traveling in comfort. You know, he was traveling with lots of people, but it's still living on the road isn't easy, even when you're rich, even when you, you know, even when you get to sleep in whatever Lord's bed you're staying in whenever you're there still. Also, lots of burden and responsibility and tragedy that he's faced through Stress. his life, too. Yeah. You know, yeah. so. Let me throw a little angle, something I was considering. This is very conspiratorial. We, we always want to bring it back to the prophecy. Aegon's the prophecy that Aegon had in his dream. And that, that's part of the stress that he would have is making sure the realm doesn't get overwhelmed by winter on his watch or on his descendants watch. I would think that would stress you out a bit. <laughs> Having dreams like that <laughs> might make your silver hair turn gray a little sooner. How does it, how do you even tell though? How do you tell? When, how, how can you tell when Targaryens are getting older? Consider the possibility. This is very conspiratorial, but the idea that the dreams were, were sent to him, you know, we, we know that's a thing because of glass candles that someone, some power convinced him that this was necessary to unite Westeros in order to take it from Targaryens 300 years later, which is, you know, that's why it's a crazy conspiratorial idea. But if we look at the TV show's ending with Bran on the Iron Throne, it's like, well, the old gods are the ones who can have the power to send dreams in this in this realm. If the old gods, this continuum of, of tree wizards sent this dream to Aegon, just like they sent dreams to Bran, then this is their... Their goal enacted. They they conned Aegon into conquering the Seven Kingdoms and then stole it from his descendants 300 years later. Again, pretty wild idea, but I, I think it's fun. Anyway, this whole stuff with Aenys getting all the attention and all the, the business of being firstborn, all this stuff, could cause the jealousy and family friction to get worse. And it would be exacerbated by Magor's failure to have children and his confidence that he was going to. He thought he was going to have kids, and then he didn't, so that made him feel bad, probably. And then that would cause him to drop in the line of succession as each successive child is born. Because we had baby Aegon born, then we had Viserys born, and we're about to have some more. So he's falling farther and farther behind the line of succession and not having children of his own. So that's a lot of frustration. Maybe his pride, his manliness is touched on. Because again, Westeros men having children is a manly thing. He's not doing it. Now again, we don't know if Reyna bumped him down in the line of succession. But Aegon and Viserys, and in a minute, Jaehaerys definitely did. And of course, Jaehaerys is the one who's going to take the throne from him eventually anyway. Although, with a lot of help. <laughs> so, not only were these princes jumping him in the line of succession, two of them had dragons. So they're, they're also just like, in some ways, they're just more Targaryen than him. And yeah. A thought I had here that, that you know, kind of a, a theme we've been running is if, if he had been prepared to be hand, if that had been like a mission on Aegon's plate, to prep Magor to be hand. So instead of him being so focused on being able to beat people up, he was focused on learning how to rule, mm -hmm. right? If he had at least maybe split time with Annie's on these royal progresses, if he had spent more time with his dad, it might've kept him from getting so jealous and bitter in the first place. So, so militant and violent in the first place. It would have given him a more worldly perspective and a greater sense of responsibility. There might have been a greater obligation on Aegon or the advisors around to address the red flags that Magor had. And he wouldn't be slipping farther out of power, too, if he was secure in a number two or spot as Hand of the King. All these new princes being born wouldn't have felt like a threat to him. So maybe that's a lot to expect him to have been prepped for Hand of the King, but I think, and, and maybe he's just going to be crazy anyway. Mm. 
But I wonder if that had been, if he had been cultivated for that position all along, if it would have resolved a lot of the issues that came out of this whole scenario. And you might, and it's a good, very good question because he is going to be hand of the king. Anis will make him hand of the king, but that doesn't mean he was prepared for it. He wasn't. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But it doesn't mean he's prepared to do anything more than just like deal with the crown's enemies. He seems good at that. <laughs> he's very good it, at that. It's going to be kind of like I was saying before, this annoying thing he's stuck doing back home while his brother has all the fun with his dad. Yeah. Right? Yeah. But if instead, if he thought of it as this responsible way to impress his father to maintain peace in the realm, peace and prosperity, right? Instead of, I'll impress my father by beating people up. You know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, this is another big difference between, a, like, if we we're trying to compare Aenys and Megor to Damon and Viserys, this is something they don't have in common because Damon and Viserys were close. That's part of where a lot of the conflict between them comes is Damon feels slighted by some of his brother's choices, whereas Aenys and Megor just weren't close. So, like, y y you're slighting me because we're brothers, but not because we have a personal relationship. And he didn't slight him, he named him Han. So, <laughs> in the year 33 AC comes the death of Vicon Greyjoy, Lord Vicon Greyjoy, and the ascent of Lord Goran. Not a big change because Goran learned the lessons of his father. His father was there when Balerion came and defeated them and put down the rebellion that was happening between Lodos and all that other business. And the Greyjoys were appointed to rule. And he's like, yeah, we want to hold on to this. Don't go against the dragons. Hey, son, don't go against the dragons. And we know that the uh, Royal Progresses took three trips to the Iron Islands, so they would have been reminded of what they're up against uh, with Balerion and Aegon coming there personally. So Goran would have, if Goran wasn't there to witness Balerion in action during that short period of time when the Iron Islands was, was put to rights or put to order, he would have seen Balerion at least just chilling in one of those future visits and would have been wowed by the sheer size of the animal. This is also the year of the final progress Aegon takes, which was, as we talked about last time, his first trip to Winterfell. So it may have included other stops in the north because he had been to the north before and might have wanted to go other places. But uh, yeah, it's his first trip to Winterfell. Now, we talked a bit about that last time, about how it may have related to a change in leadership and all this stuff. But one thing that we didn't mention also relates to the prophecy, which is... It's another chance for Aegon and whoever the Stark in Winterfell is at the time, whether it's Torin or Brandon the Boisterous or Rickard Stark, one of those three most likely, they could discuss the prophecy in private, perhaps not even with maesters around. And but that also is worth something bring, is worth bringing up. Aegon, did he ever discuss the prophecies with his maesters? I'm guessing no, but maybe it's a it's a soft no because none of them wrote about it. Yeah, I think so. That's a problem. There would have had to be a campaign to like remove it from the histories if if it yeah. existed. I don't think the maesters would have just chosen to not mention it once. I don't. I think it's a good I point. think there's no way. But he did make oh, a big deal about having a lot of maesters around him, like six. Maybe one of the maesters. Yeah. I can I can imagine him confiding in one, especially given that he had so many. That might have been part of why he had. They might have each had different sort of roles, like someone who's more knowledgeable about. The histories of each of the kingdoms, one is more knowledgeable about, you know, medicine. One of the ones with the Valerian Steel Link would be, yeah, a candidate for magic discussions. Yeah. He might have instructed him not to repeat any or write down anything of what they discussed. That would exactly. that would remove yeah. the need for it to be removed after the fact. It would have never written down in the first place, which I think that's possible. It is possible anyway. And I'll recall Cersei. Again, we have a Song of Ice and Fire example. Asking Kyburn about the supernatural, about prophecy specifically. Like, she's concerned about the prophecy of Maggie the Frog. And uh, Aemon 
Maester Raymond has thoughts on the supernatural, and he probably corresponded with Rhaegar. Marwyn has thoughts on the prophecy, which is, you know, prophecy is like a <laughs> having your, what is it, like having your dick bitten or whatever. <laughs> That's what he says. Melisandre says it's a sword without a hilt. Yeah, there's lots of colorful euphemisms for prophecy <laughs> in, this, in this series <laughs> and elsewhere. And again, I, I've asked this question before, but I feel like... Even Rhaenys and Visenya, did he not tell? I think he might have had to tell them, but maybe not. He had to tell Aenys, though. He had to pass it on. That's one person that had to know. And if he tells Aenys, who knows when, though? When did he tell him? On one of those royal progresses? When he turned 16? When he first rode a dragon? This would be decent guesses, I suppose, but I don't know. Any chance he told Maegor? Uh, I would think no, because... The, the throne was, wasn't going to pass to Magor, especially like after Aenys starts having kids and all that. It looks like Magor's even farther behind. Yeah, it's possible. It is possible, but I'm guessing no. Because I wonder if it could explain why Magor was so determined to be a good warrior. Maybe he thought he had to oh, fulfill this prophecy. Interesting. May, may, maybe part of why he was cruel. Like maybe he thought the world doesn't matter anyway. Like the, I haven't had a son, so the prophecy can't fulfill. So nothing matters anyway. I oh, wonder, you know. well dark but possible <laughs> and with the growing family and important targaryens in multiple locations you would see more of the king's guard being divided and, and split in different areas which might be where you start to see a little more you know, little personal relationships maybe bias within the king's guard some king's guard might favor certain targaryens more than others because of who they spend more time with things like that might start to happen and, for example, again, we come back to Lord Commander Corlys. Did Visenya and Magor not trust him as much, maybe, because he's connected to Alyssa and the others? Or was his loyalty well-established? Maybe he was not. Again, I have to repeat that he may not be alive at this point. We don't know when he died. But either way, there would be, what house is this Kingsguard from? And is that maybe an, an issue or not? The year 34 is the year Jaehaerys was born. This is when... Reyna definitely did the egg cradle thing, and probably the first time. And it did, she did it for Jerry's, and that egg did indeed become Vermithor, the dragon he bonded with, and it was a big dragon, the Bronze Fury. I am reticent to say this early bonding helped the dragon grow larger, but given how little we know about how dragons work and given their magical things, it's possible. It's very possible. Worth adding on to the long list of theories about dragons and how they work and grow. <laughs> Meanwhile, Sir Osmond Strong, Hand of the King, Wall Builder for King's Landing, and Sargoso San Fighter died and was replaced by Lord Alan Stokeworth, a man who seems brave and likely to be very competent. Now, Alan Stokeworth is going to hold the, the job for a little while, but if we refer back to this to the career of Sir Osmond... There's gaps in the hands record. Like there's sometimes there's some periods where we don't know who the hand was. Not a lot though. Most of the hands we know. It's mostly during the reign of Aegon the Third and Aegon the Fifth where we have these large gaps. But very few ever will hold the office longer than Sir Osmond, who held it for 17 years. So the third ever hand of the king will be the longest running for quite a while until Barth comes along. Actually, not that far later, and and, and sets the all-time record. Blood Raven. 26 plus years, Tywin, 19, and then again for about two, because he had two separate terms, and then Prince Viserys, again, not to be confused with this current Prince Viserys, this is the Prince Viserys who became King Viserys II, he's going to rule as Hand of the King for about 18 years, so a little longer than Osmond. 
a strong hand can hold on for a long time. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> the year 35 is when we get more homemaking, more making the house a home. Aegon gives the order to destroy the Aegon Fort and build something more fitting. Now, again, it was wooden. You get a wooden castle for the king of the Iron Throne and a guy with dragons. It's just not fitting. I mean, your dragon can destroy your castle with a sneeze. I mean, yeah, it's time to rebuild, right? Alan Stokeworth's first major task was to do this, was to rebuild what became the Red Keep. I don't even know if they had a name for it at first, but that name seems to have come after they were building it and realized, hey, this thing is red. <laughs> Look at that. Let's call it the Red Keep. It really seems like qualification to be a hand of the king in this era was to have some some skill in overseeing building projects because the last one did the wall building project for six years. This Red Keep building project's going to take more than a decade. Oh, yeah. But it wasn't just his job. It was also Visenya's. He sent Visenya to King's Landing to help oversee the castle. She wasn't needed for the wall building project, but this is a little more about like where they're going to be living. And so it's a little more personal. Like It's like have your wife take charge of the interior design kind of situation or something. On the other hand, this also he also swapped places with her again. <laughs> you know, he was living in King's Landing. She was a Dragonstone. He ordered her to come to build the Red Keep. And he went to Dragonstone, so it's like, mm, he just keeps avoiding her, yeah, or is that just yeah. more about having the rulers in different places? But you could see why those rumors about him not wanting to be around her would yeah, I persist. Think he, I, yeah, I think so. I really, really think he was not fond of her. I don't think he hated <laughs> her or anything like that. I don't think anything so extreme. But I don't think he was, like, raring to spend his time with her at all. Especially if he was getting softer and, and, and you know, and she was She's still just harder. as hardcore as ever. And she, and she was getting harder. Yeah, yeah I don't I mean. <laughs> if, he was, if he was pressing him about this and that or about these marriages or marry Magor to hit to, my, to your granddaughter. And she's just like, I'm so sick of this. Or, yeah, it could have, it might not have been political at all. It might have been like, yeah, he just. Yeah, it could be what you she said. She finds her grating. <laughs> yeah. Know? Or it could have been what you said. He just, like thought it was best to not keep all their eggs in, in one yeah. nest or whatever and just keep Visenya separate from thing. him. Yeah. yeah, he could have thought of that. I don't know. It, it's true. I mean, it could be both of those things. I mean, he could say it was that, but in his head, you know, he's like, oh, whew, I'm so glad I have an excuse to not see Visenya. <laughs> and here we see another impact of their parenting. As brutal and psycho as Magor is, he had a lot of energy for building projects. And maybe he got this from his mother, watching her operate, watching her take over the building of the Red Keep, which he would later take a big hand in. After all, Magor's holdfast is the final refuge within the Red Keep, and it's named after him for a reason. He designed it. He ordered it put in there. Of course, this is also the guy that had all the builders killed, but uh, that's Magor for you. <laughs> he's a brutal guy, but he's not uninteresting. He definitely <laughs> drives the story in some some fun ways and yeah so i think that's an interesting kind of dot connection there his interest in building projects and how his mother had a lot of responsibility in terms of building the house for the targaryens would live in the red keep the one they'd live in forever and it also shows their the paranoia though and the mistrust of their own people we talked about how yeah they built walls to keep out outsiders the Red Keep is just as much keeping out their own people. It's, it's, it's defense against the population rising up against them, which it will absolutely prove valuable in that regard multiple times in its history. It will keep out angry, rioting commoners and as well as some legitimate like invading armies. And this is another thing I wonder about as far as when Aegon went to Dragonstone uh, and sent Visenya to court. 
It says he took the small council with him. So what about Magor? Did he also, I assume he went to court to stay with his mom, because especially because of this, this dot connecting with the building projects and the Red Keep and all that. But it's possible he stayed on Dragonstone and was for a short time had a little bit more of an active role at court and council. But I'm guessing he went to with his mom. What do you think, Sean? Any guesses on that or takes on that? Yeah, it's another scenario where I wonder how much conflict there would have been between him and the, the hand mm-hmm. who was charged with building this. If they worked together well, how involved was oh, the yeah. council or mm. if they were at odds with each other. I, I wonder how much if Magor had been given more building projects, if it would have kept them busy enough for <laughs> yeah, and not do some of the other stuff he did, you know. That's something to put his energy into that isn't violent, you know. <laughs> yeah. Well, should it be violent, but he still ended up. He managed to find a way to make it violent, yeah. Do you think Magor also had a had a bedroom filled with uh, models? models? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's a funny thing oh, actually funny. viserys the the, yeah. the 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 dragon you had the most in common with was magor like wait what <laughs> yeah you guys both were really into models yeah this was magor's before it was yours yeah <laughs> that is an interesting thought i wonder yeah yeah imagine visenya giving magor some little little model valyria when he's a boy and then him growing into a bigger version of that later and then yeah it just gets stick into a dusky closet later until viserys finds like whoa look at this it's like legos man yeah i love it <laughs> I'm imagining mm-hmm. him having all sorts of like proposed red keep designs, you know, yeah, all yeah, sorts of different architectural little, little secret tunnels structures and all trying to figure out which one is going to actually get built. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that it's it's fascinating though, to think about that, that the guy who had all those secret tunnels made is Megor. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so the year 36 this is basically the last year we'll cover we'll flirt with the following year briefly in, in our outro but 36 ac alisanne is born future wife to jaharis reina places an egg in her cradle as well because she's that mothering older sibling that she is and that dragon egg hatches and becomes silverwing so again it's a success story i wonder if vermithor had already hatched by this time probably it had only been a couple years but that's all it takes, I think. So, yeah, probably. So, at this time, Reyna is now 13. Aegon's 10. Aenys and Alyssa are 29. Magor's 24. Aegon's 62. Visenya's 64. A lot of others are still out there, too. Daria Martell is still alive, as far as we know. Gargon the Guest. Lord Ori's one hand, also still alive. Ethan Valarian is still alive. Possibly Lord Commander Corlys Valarian. We don't know about him. That's still, again, that's Ethan's brother. And it's a pretty pretty important year, although in terms of milestones, though I don't know that we have a ton to say about it. This is continuing forward, barreling towards the problems of the beginning of Aenys's reign and setting up a lot of groundwork for the conflict between Magor and Aenys's descendants later, as well as Magor and the Faith and the Dance of the Dragons. You could absolutely trace some of the Dance of the Dragons groundwork to this stuff here i forgot to mention in the year 35 was reina's first flight on dreamfire she bonded with dreamfire when she was nine but she didn't fly on him until she was 12 so three more years and part of that is dreamfire being too small to ride that's not just her her development it's the dragon as well because dreamfire was a hatchling when she was presented with her the first time so yeah you'd see that's an interesting like brother sister dynamic reina's out there flying her dragon meanwhile Aegon doesn't have one yet and again that's why we asked the question of was he waiting was it a similar thing? If Magor is waiting for a dragon, you better you should wait for one too, for the same reason. If he, if he wants to claim Balerion, 
maybe you should wait to claim Balerion because you have arguably a better claim to Balerion. That might have been a thing that came to head. As it as it turned out, Magor just got the initiative and claimed Balerion, and that was that. You know, but they they, they may have been thinking that Aegon would have that chance. And I don't know who they is. Maybe Aegon himself, maybe Aenys, maybe Alyssa, maybe all of them. Maybe maybe Aegon, the King Aegon himself as well, was expecting this Aegon to get Balerion. But he obviously didn't like write that down or decree it. Because <laughs> that certainly isn't given to us as in the sources. And it seems like it would have been if that had happened. So the next year is when Aegon dies. And that's when things are going to really blow up. And we're going to leave the story here. But leaving it here gives us quite a picture of House Targaryen. You've got a lot of kids now, a lot of grandchildren. you got five grandchildren from the union of Alyssa and Aenys. And you still have Magor and all these. The family is double digits now, depending on who you count. But I think even a tight counting is a large number of people. And if you count the dragons that have been born in this era, we have... Dra- we have Unnamed dragons in this era that we don't even know about. We we tried to guess who those six hatchlings were that were offered to Magor, and we only had one idea: the cannibal, which might mean the cannibal ate the other five. <laughs> that would that would explain it somewhat. Yeah, we give it its name real quick. If like yeah. they had six dragons and one dragon ate the other five, we're like you're the cannibal. Yeah, like dang, <laughs> uh, that's a thing that can happen. Yikes! Like, woof. That's like something out of. I don't know, you hear that in, like, some of the Star Wars races have things like that. Some of these weird aliens that exist in Star Wars, like the... Yeah, Trandoshans do that. Yeah, they're uh. they're brutal from the beginning. Yeah, so the so dragons and Trandoshans have some things in, in common. <laughs> that is a real thing in just normal nature also. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, and, and mamas do that too. Like, you'll see, like, a mom bird or squirrel. It's like, I can't raise all five of you. One of you's got to go. I can, I can only raise four of you. It's brutal, but, yeah, nature is... Nature is metal, as they say. <laughs> but what's that uh, Futurama quote about nature? For in the end, nature is horrific and teaches us nothing. <laughs> that's it. That's it. In the end, nature is horrific and teaches us nothing. <laughs> yep. yep. Supernatural, supernature. It's true that in that case as well. So yeah. <laughs> All right, so yeah, it will not be a transition, a peaceful transition of power. It's almost like many people were just waiting for Aegon to die, or for Aenys to take over, one or the other. It's the same. Pick, take, you know, chicken or the egg, dragon or the egg. You take your pick. The realm went from someone everyone was afraid of because he had proved repeatedly that you should be afraid of him to someone that almost no one was afraid of, even though he had a dragon and a nasty, dangerous brother. They apparently just. Kind of ignored that part. But to be fair, Magor was not the writer of Balerion just yet. So it was still a bad idea. But you can see why it was a better idea to try it against Aenys than against Aegon. So we have a lot to say about that. But we won't be coming back with that next time. We're going to pivot away from Fire and Blood briefly as we are establishing a pattern. We'll do, you know... Five, six, seven, eight Fire and Blood episodes at a time, pivot away, do other stuff, and then come back to it. And I imagine we'll be able to pivot back to it probably one more time before House of the Dragon season. But of course, we'll return to it when the time is appropriate, and we will let you know. So next week, I'm going to leave it a little bit of a surprise for now. So Because we usually tell you, but it's fun to have the occasional surprise. So this is a good time for that. But I won't leave you in the dark on the trivia question because that would be very mean of me which of prince aegon's grandsons grandchildren rather did not ever ride a dragon 
That would be Prince Viserys, the middle child. Never rode a dragon that we know of. He did become Magor's squire, and that didn't go very well for we, him. I will say we got uh, a number of people who said Viserys, and some people who questioned whether Vela would count. That's a fair point. Vela died in the cradle. Yeah, like, I well, don't she usually she count a little that. She lived longer enough. That, yeah. Anyways, that was the debate going on it's in a good, the chat. That's a good point. I, I should. I could. If I were to ever ask that question again, out of all the children Adults. who lived to. To be dragon riding age. Yeah, to to be old enough to ride a dragon. Because certainly Vela was not old enough to dra- ride a dragon. So yeah, there's there's an we'll have to word that exception properly. But yes, that's a it's it's a fair point when we're doing trivia. Trivial answers yeah. definitely are fair game. So good call on mm-hmm. those of you who mentioned Vela. Um, Wait, we have to what, what do we have to say? Vaea? Vaea, like, yes. Vaea. Chloe of Girls Gone Canon and, and got us started on. She says die die. Just Dayla as like Paella. <laughs> and I now whenever I see those names, I'm like Paella. Daella, yeah. Paella. I just <laughs> yes, have to hear the, <laughs> It's the uh it's the Spanish or Portuguese Targaryens. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So we mentioned some episodes that relate to this one. Of course, we mentioned young Tywin, so the reigns of Castamere would be a good one. Uh, obviously under the dragon's high tower, both the parts one and two. We talked about the the changes at the Iron Island, so our Patreon episode on the Red Kraken would be fun. We talked about Dorne a bit, so maybe Nymeria is your bag. And we talked a bit about Dark Sister, so you you can check out our episode on Dark Sister. Those are my suggestions for this time, but there's so many others you can find by browsing our back catalog. It is large, if I do say so myself. Yes, I do. Sean, you have some shout-outs you wish to give to some of our patrons. Let's hear them! As always, I include a few uh, classic veterans and new recruits. We've got Lady Aaron of House Snowblood, Mother of Maniacs. (laughs) A couple straightforward names here. Jake the Fifth and The Paladin. Ooh, The Paladin, nice. And some newer ones. Sir Dumpsteer of House Raccoon. Sigil is a fat black and silver raccoon on Greyfield words gimme that is the right way to spell dumpster it's spelled d-u-m-p-s-t-y-r like the magnar <laughs> steer the magnar yeah i love that that is uh dom awesome. of folkwise uh over on twitch hey yeah give no- folkwise notable, a follow yeah notable raccoon lover <laughs> <laughs> yes absolutely a couple more here adler snow bastard of bear island known as the northern fury as fierce as she is loyal and Wisdom Mendex, Bastard of Starfall. Yeah, cool. Yes, that's appropriate. Thanks as well to Nina uh, for all the great notes. Lots of great points today. Lots of great discussion topics. Lots of good rabbit holes for us to dive into. Again, her blog is goodqueenalley with one L dot Tumblr dot com. You know, I never point out that Tumblr is without an E, but I imagine you knew that. If you know anything about Tumblr, it's like, I don't know, grinder that... <laughs> It's not like Grinder. I mean, the spelling is like it. Yeah, I was gonna say it's like Tumblr, just like Grinder. Yeah, but not at all. Just like yeah, not just. Google like. knows enough to help you out if you're uh, if you didn't know. Yes, <laughs> Joey, Jesse, Bran, and Michael Clarfeld. Thanks to you all for your excellent additions to our show in the form of maps, intro, outro. And music Can I in tell all you, its forms. Every time you say though that group of names, I think of uh, Daria. 
Daria yeah, is in the, the cartoon. There's, yeah, the cartoon Daria because there's uh, there's Joey, Jeffy, and Jamie, the three <laughs> boys that like Quinn Morgendorfer like has always following her <laughs> around, but like the three J's they're known by. So as you hear go, you go Joey, Jesse, and I'm like Jeffy, Jeffy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, burning Daria lovers. <laughs> Jeffy is definitely a little a, a, a name of someone very young. I think I, I, an adult named Jeffy. I've never heard of such a thing. Yeah, it's. A t- I mean, it's a teen boy. They're all they're yeah. all teen boys, and they're <laughs> all meant to be a little bit emasculated by I think being Joey, Jesse, and Jamie and Jeffy, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, on behalf of my fellow co-hosts and all of our many cats, who I guess we didn't get any appearances from them today, but next time, perhaps. next Y'all got to come in and ask. Yeah, you got to ask for cat appearances. We rarely don't come through when you ask, but y'all don't always ask. But until next time, Valar, reread us.